Welcome to the Achiever Network podcast. I'm Sharon Kybel, your host and founder of AchieverNet, education for today. We focus on success strategies, business building and performance and productivity programs. And at AchieverNet, we're building a community of extraordinary achievers and I am super thrilled to have you join us today. Please enjoy the AchieverNet podcast. Welcome back to the Achiever Network podcast. I'm Sharon Kybel and very excited today to have an awesome guest. I'm super, super excited. So uh, buckle up and get yourself ready. We have joining us today, the business alchemist, the business alchemist. So Monica Mundell is an extraordinary person. She has this wonderful ability to be able to tap into the yin and the yang, the right and the left sides of who you are. So she's an extraordinarily gifted, creative soul, but she also has a side of her that's very structured and systematic. And those two elements together, uh, she has actually described herself as a unicorn because it truly is a unique (laughs) gift. Uh, She's been able to create several, in fact, three multiple six-figure businesses with her ability to tap into both the creative and the systemizing of businesses. So uh, Monica today is joining us as the business alchemist. She uh, is going to share with us how to create a lifestyle business. Now, a bit of background on Monica. Uh, She and her husband have been traveling the world for five years as a location independent couple. So they have traveled the world. They've visited extraordinary places, living in beautiful parts of the world and no home to come home to. So really, it's, it's one of those ways of living that most of us don't comprehend, you know, because we're busy paying our mortgages and we're busy kind of heading off to to work and doing our businesses and stuff. Well, she's off out having fun, (laughs) but in doing so, earning a bucket load of cash as well. Um, So a bit of background on Monica. She is a, a copywriter by trade, extraordinarily gifted at being able to sell her message And she is also a coach. So she's been able to really work with business owners to help them create the business and life that they desire. So super excited to have her here today to uh, work with us uh, to help us to create a lifestyle business. So welcome, Monica. Thank you, Sharon. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) That introduction was just amazing. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Look, it's, it's just... Um, One of those moments, you know, when you meet people and you know that they are just so tapped into their inner wisdom, um, and Monica totally is, she's got an ability to be able to create products and create businesses and then be able to, you know, put it up online and, and be able to enable that inner genius to come out, not only for herself, but also for her clients. So we have... Um, the gift of hearing three of your best tips. So should we get straight into it? Yeah, absolutely. Let's get started. Yeah. So three tips today. So how do we create a lifestyle business, Monica? All right. That's a good question, right? Because a lot of people want that. And, you know, it was funny when you mentioned paying the mortgage because I used to be that person, right? I had three mortgages at one stage in my life. 
and my husband was already retired thanks to my business and I just didn't want that anymore. So we basically um, enabled ourselves to travel the world. That's how we came, and but that's a whole other story. But like when you mentioned the mortgage, I'm like, yeah, I've been there. I know exactly what she's talking about. <laughs> so the first tip I want to talk about today is to, um, it's really important. Like I see so many entrepreneurs who struggle um, in their business. And one of the core reasons why that is happening is because they're not in alignment with their values and their passion. Like, I, like many of us start a business because we want to be the nine to five, right? Mm -hmm. We want to be our own boss. We want to control our hours, our working hours. We want to be in charge of our life. But along the way, uh, to many uh, of us, it happened that we kind of get templated or shepherded into a style of business that we're not actually 100% passionate about and that happens because people are generally afraid of showing their true selves and when you're not showing your true self then you're operating in a realm where yes you're doing your dues you're, you're functioning in your business but you're not actually going as fast and as quickly as you can possibly go. Mm. And when you allow yourself to be in true alignment and really honor your wisdom and your values and go all out, that's when the magic happens. That's the sweet spot. Because mm. people who follow you will love your bravery and your courage. And they will see you as a shining light and they will follow you to the end of the world because you helping them by ena enabling yourself and give yourself permission to be good enough the way you are with your faults, your mistakes, like we all have, right? None mm. of us is perfect. By enabling ourselves, we actually help and transform other people. We, we can transform millions of people that way, oh. just by being authentic. Yeah, look, that's amazing. Yeah. I have, I'll have goosebumps because yeah. um, prior to us pressing the record button today, uh, Monica and I were chatting and, uh, you know, I did share with her, you know, some of my own um, self-doubt. And self-doubt, it plays with everyone. It toys with their brains and it um, can really sort of slow people down from enabling their gift to be spread out into the world. And I love the fact that you're saying that if you can truly align, like really think about what you're passionate about, what you spend your time doing, what you... You know, you're just so connected with, mm. and if you build your business around that, mm. then you're going to flow yes. a lot more. Yeah, it there's there's actually two things that need to happen for a business to be successful. Um, first, you need to be totally in alignment with your genius, with your passion, because when the going gets tough, which it does, right? Business is not all happy days. A lot of it is like the grind work behind the scenes and nobody commends you and says you're awesome when you do the behind the scenes work and that's where uh, a lot of people fall down because they need that uh, acknowledgement they need to be witnessed in doing the hard work and most of us are not witnessed true genius comes into play when you actually continue doing the hard work when nobody says how amazing mm. you are because that is that is a true master mm. and the second is you need to have demand so whatever you're offering to the marketplace be it a service a program whatever a product 
there needs to be a demand for it. And yes, you can generate demand to an extent, but if people don't want what you're offering, then it's very hard to sell it. So your offer needs to be, um, you know, needs somebody needs to want it, and it has to be a good enough offer that um, allows people to have a transformational experience as well. Yes. Um, but yeah, the the, the honouring of of yourself that was one of my hardest parts as well. Mm. I was a pleaser most of my life, and I I was seeking the admiration and the. Um, you know, the, the, the support from other people to value myself. And then I realized that it's not what it, it's not, not about that. Like I, I, I don't get anywhere like that. I've, I've, I'm be forever losing and actually selling myself short, which means I sell all my potential clients short as well. Mm. Because if I don't show up, then they will still be in pain. Yes. And when I understood that, then and when I gave myself permission to just be good enough the way I am with all my mistakes, my faults, my shadows, right, all the dark side stuff, then that's perfect. That's really all that we can be. And at the same time, you know, we share from our experience. That's what we do. So, yeah, yeah. And somebody will connect with that. And these are the people we're speaking to. And everyone else who doesn't agree or who doesn't like what you do or questions you or even critiques you, they're not our clients. So we don't really, it's not our business what they think. Yeah. And isn't it interesting yeah. that, you know, as entrepreneurs or creatives, that quite often we take uh, or pay more attention to the people who are critiquing mm. us mm. instead of the 99% of our audience who you know, it is our tribe, mm. the ones that we're really doing the hard work for. Mm. And yet that, that single voice yeah. in the hundred um, plays on your mind. And we let this one person get into our psyche and hold our focus. Mm. So I love what you're saying there to make sure that you're really working for those people who love you and love what you're doing. Yeah, because if we don't, um, we're actually manifesting more of the negativity and if we give energy to the negative people, we actually get more of that. And not only that, we validate what they're saying. So the best way to deal with negativity is to just ignore it because we need to focus. It's hard enough to build a business with the challenges that we face on a daily basis. So we need to focus our energies on the positive stuff so we can be grateful for every single day, every single client, every amazing experience and by being grateful for the amazing stuff we actually attract and manifest more of that into our life yeah fantastic yeah and you know just to close off on that that first point um to make sure that you, when you are building a lifestyle business you're truly aligned with your passion and your genius i love that message that you can be so much more enthused and energized to get through the tough times in business when you're aligned. Mm. So thank you. I think that's a brilliant point. Mm. So uh, align with your passion and genius. Step number one to building a lifestyle business. Mm -hmm. What's our second tip? Second tip is to really pay attention to the balance in your life. And by balance, I don't just mean um, whether you are balanced uh, emotionally or whatever. I'm talking about fully embracing your shadow self as well. Um, because we need to, 
every person has a yin and a yang. We have a feminine, we have masculine, we have the dark side and the light side, we have the positive and the negative. So you can go on and on and on about that. We have yeah, lazy days, yeah, up and down, <laughs> lazy days, action days. That's just part of being human. The, but what's, what, what people tend to forget, entrepreneurs especially, they tend to forget that it's actually just as important to stop and pay attention to what's going on as it is to take massive action. Like, for example, right now we're in the dark moon phase, okay? We've just had a, a new moon yesterday with a, with a partial uh, eclipse. And this is a very big, massive time in our life for this year. But during the dark moon phase, it's actually a time to look at your previous phase of the moon, uh, your cycle, right? Your entire moon cycle and analyze what's worked well, what hasn't worked well. And that applies just as well to the seasons, you know, like spring, um, summer, uh, autumn and winter. It's the same thing. Like we need to take stock and pay attention. But as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, we tend to just go, go, go mm. because we mm. want to make money. We need I to pay the bills. Charge right? on, move yeah. on, take action. And <laughs> in doing so, we burn out. Mm. We, we burn out. It's, it's impossible. We're not machines. We're not robots. We can't just keep going and being on all the time. So it's natural to want to take time out, but we need to manage that. And so it's really important to be aware of your downtimes, but also to honor your uptimes and work with your natural cycle as well. Because mm. some people work better at nighttime and some people work better in the morning. Like I'm a morning person. Yeah. I love getting up early, get all my business done, come lunchtime, I'm done for the day. Mm. I can go and chill out. Now I can that play. That really is a lovely lifestyle yeah. business, Monica. It <laughs> is. It, it is amazing. Because then I can, I can play guilt-free. Mm. I, but I wasn't always like that. I used to work until one o'clock in the morning, right? Mm. Writing copy and coaching and doing coaching hour, uh, calls at all hours of the day because I have clients worldwide. So mm. the time zones make it a bit more challenging. But what has helped me is definitely paying attention to my energy cycle, like my natural energy cycles and working with them and then being consistent about going to bed at 10 o'clock. Because I need to go to bed at 10 o'clock and then I can get up at 6 or at 5. If, if I don't honor that and I am up until midnight, A, I toss and turn in bed half of the night and B, I'm really tired and grumpy the next day. So if you can pay attention to your own cycles and then work with those cycles, however, mm. however mm. they are. Which, uh, you know, I, again, I think that's an increasingly important conversation that, you know, when we start a business, I know for me, what um, happened to me is I went from working in a nine to five job. And then when I started my business, I kind of carried over that way of working into mm. my business. So mm. I kind of started work at 8.30 and I'd turn my computer off at 5.30 and I thought, oh, look, I'm doing really well because I'm following these hours yes. because that's the, the the model of the world. Yes. And, you know, I'm, I'm there, I'm yeah. happening as a, yeah. a business owner. But what I'm hearing from, from you is as entrepreneurs, firstly, we have the choice mm -hmm. uh, yes. to be able to choose when 
we want to work yes. and that's why we go into our own yes. business um, so yeah. that we can choose yeah. and then secondly we have the ability to really tap into when is our peak performance time mm. and it may not be between 9 and 5 in yeah. the work day you yeah. know if it was 1am to 4am yes and that's your peak time you yeah. say go with it yeah yeah, exactly. and I also love this conversation because um, I, I've been a, a little bit passionate about this myself. You know, we're at the start of a new year mm-hmm. and um, there's a lot of, you know, kind of coaches out there that are, are spreading this stuff that, you know, you've got to get into it and, you know, take massive action. Um, but we forget to say it's okay to have a break. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. okay to have time out. And mm-hmm. so over the festive period... Um, what you're saying is that it's really important for us to actually mm. do that rest stuff. Yes, it is. It is not just over the festive period, any time. Mm. Um, I'm a big believer in putting your business first. Of, of course, if you have children, you have a family, they, like, they go first, your partners go first. But at the same time, your business has to go first too. Because if you're not making money, if you're not earning an income that sustains your lifestyle, then you don't have a lifestyle. You can't support your family, you can't support your spouse, your partner, whatever. And so it makes it a lot harder to function as a, as a happy, harmonious entrepreneur. The balance comes from being really clear about what matters to you. And obviously you're in business because you have a dream. You want to change the world. You want to help people. You want to make this world a better place. You want to leave a legacy. You want to support your family, whatever it is. But you can't do that if you're not focused on your business. So it's really easy to say, oh, I'm tired today or I'm depressed or I don't feel like doing business. And that continues and continues and continues and continues and before you know it two months have passed and you haven't gone anywhere Mm. that's not good either so we need to um, be self-managing our ability to be uh, focused and you know when the time is to sow the seeds and go out there and, and gather momentum that's what we do but then there comes a time when we can harvest our seeds because it's become a beautiful fruit labor like fruit of our labor and we we generate that momentum we get clients through the door we get referrals we get all that happening and so then we can sort of cut back a bit and say okay now i deserve a rest day now i deserve a rest week now i deserve a holiday and the way i've always operated is i do the work first i attack the hardest part of my work first thing of the day and then when my work is done i can reward myself guilt-free Mm. And I think and that's it, isn't it? Guilt free. Oh yeah, guilt free. Mm. And I think daily rewards are important. Um, whether that's a bath, a massage, um, just a coffee date with a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a friend, whether that's um, a, tr- a trip to the shops to buy something. It doesn't always have to be buying stuff, or you go walking in nature or whatever. Mm. Right? We mm. all have little things that make us happy. Um, I think it's really important to to give, like as part of the seeing and yang balance, to actually make sure we can 
put this yin and yang into our daily life. Mm, mm. Yeah, because if we don't, it just becomes an excuse. It like becomes it, a drug. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if you're saying, oh, look, it's, today's my day to have you know, a down day, but mm. if, if that happens too often, mm. um, we're just selling ourselves a story or an excuse as yes. to why our business isn't working. Yes. And I think your point is really important that, you know, if, that's a down day, but there has to be an upside, yeah. an up day to balance it. Yeah. And that as entrepreneurs, we've got to, you know, be conscious about keeping that balance right. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's a constant learning. It's not like, I'm not perfect at this. Like I'm constantly managing my energies and constantly managing my um, up up cycles and down cycles without feeling guilty even so I know I don't have to feel guilty because I've done the work so it's not something that you master and then you just fly through it's something that keeps coming up mm. and you just take it one day at a time but you do the best that you can to be self-responsible about the actions you take in your business and then you can have the down times and you can be more um, you know relaxed I suppose mm. Mm. But when I talk about the yin and yang balance, something else I'd like to address is, is not just the balance of your energies. You, we, we have to also manage all our aspects. So not just the physical part of what we do, it's the emotions, it's the spiritual side. So we, we like some of us are stronger in, in our emotional mastery, others are stronger as spiritual entrepreneurs. Others are just go-getters and just do the work and then they, they need more spirit, right? Because to be fully functional as a... Because as a, we are mm. spiritual beings in a human body, yes. right? And to be able to have the best life that we can possibly have in this body right now, we need to be able to master all parts of us. Yes. And, you know... Um, I'm so glad you brought that up because we were chatting about that previously about the need to uh, delve into the the spiritual and that you know I and I know we share this mm. that there is this global awakening and people are starting to realize that unless they do tap into that that emotional spiritual side of themselves there mm. they don't feel as whole or as complete mm. you know that we've gone through the the 80s which was very much informational age yes. now we're more about the transformational age yes. and that has to incorporate uh, a self-awareness yes. or an emotional mastery yeah. a spiritual mastery in there yeah. and that's what I love about you Monica is that as the business alchemist having the business and the life that you desire is about very much tapping into the hard skills mm -hmm required to run a business mm -hmm. but also the the softer the more spiritual the more sensual side of who we are as mm. a person mm. so thank you I think that yin and yang balance to honor your whole self is a really important point so so far you've looked at alignment with your passion and genius uh, which is a great tip we've talked about the yin and yang balance mm -hmm. to make sure that you're honoring your complete you yeah What's your third tip for us as uh, lifestyle entrepreneurs to build our business? <laughs> All right. So the, the third tip is actually very important as well because um, many, and, and I know that happened to me, right? Like I built three successful businesses and 
all the knowledge that I had was in my head, mm -hmm. okay? And I was struggling to outsource myself because I had the knowledge, I had the expertise, it was in my head, and I wasn't able to actually remove myself from my business. So what I've learned along the way is that it's really important to systemize your knowledge. So tip so number three is systemizing your knowledge. Systemize your knowledge because that allows you to remove yourself from your business and actually earn money as a residual income. And you can have a team of people in your life, in your business, who can take care of some of the tasks that need to be done in your business. And typically, the systems that you uh, create are around the daily tasks that you do, and especially the tasks you do every day that you don't like doing. You know, like email, um, client fulfillment, client onboarding, um, um, like techie stuff, you know, things like that that don't like you up necessarily. I'm not talking about you specifically, but anybody has, like everybody in business has things they absolutely love doing mm. and I just love to do that every day and play all day long. Yes. And then they have stuff that needs to be done like admin work and all of that stuff, onboarding, um, you know, fulfillment of like when you sell courses, that can be outsourced. You don't have to physically be present to serve your clients on a higher level like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for... For an entrepreneur who's just gone out into their own business, I think that's a, such an important point to systemize, mm. you know, as early as you can. Yes. Like, don't go through years and years of pain yeah. and then go, okay, now I've, I've got to change my habits <laughs> and <it>. learn how to <laughs> systemize. So yeah. I think what you're saying is systemize, but, you know, if we do it early enough, mm. we're creating yes. the habit of business of yeah. systemizing. Yes. So how, how would you go about doing that? So for someone who's never had a team of people how do you you, you mentioned you know outsourcing mm -hmm. how do you start the process of systemizing you basically write down what you do every single day mm -hmm. and then each of these tasks that you do has its own process so you write all that down and then you put it into a format that can be um, understood by anybody and that is something that I do with my clients. I help them, mm. you know, put that into place. That's like part of what I do. But it's it, it needs to be, you need to basically dumb it down so that a, a school kid, like a teenager, can understand what needs to be done and they could literally take over from you. Your husband could take over from you when you're sick in bed and you need to onboard a new client or you need to... Um, you know, answer emails, like you have email templates that you use for, you know, FAQs, frequently asked questions. So start to compile a, an email, um, you know, a library of frequently asked questions and the answers you send to people all the time. Like what are the typical emails that you get and how do you normally respond? So you can put these into little templates and then when people email you with the same sort of question, you just change the address, like you, you know, mm. the name and have something a little bit more personal based on the email, but the rest is just a template. You just yes. copy paste and it saves you so much time. Yeah. It yeah. saves you so much time. And with Gmail, if you have Gmail, you can actually put these in your, um, in your Gmail uh, drafts. So they're actually, they become like a template library for you. 
Mm. And there's so many tools you can use. You can use a uh, Google Drive, use Google Documents on Google Drive. It's free. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. And um, we've got the doggies here. It's <laughs> nice. Yeah, so um, the Google Drive allows you to then um, systemize your tasks and create these documents around. And before you know it, you have a mini system that you can outsource and you know perfect over time make it better mm. make it better make it better and the best way to find out whether your system is working is to just hand it to your partner or your teenage child and say can you do this for me mm. and just see what happens right tip yeah um it's it's really important because without the system you can never be 100 percent free yeah and so yeah. systemizing is 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 big because you need to be able to remove yourself um, from your business, especially once you have the cash flow and you can actually pay people to do some of the yeah. work for you. And, you know, my my head's just gone off into that space where, you know, as the, the <laughs> business alchemist, um, uh, you are the queen of lifestyle, <laughs> you know, and what I'm loving about the whole systemization thing is that if you build your systems good enough, what you're actually doing is you're building a business. Mm. You're not building uh, just an income earning opportunity mm. for yourself mm. you're building an, a business that has got true value to someone else yes. so there may come a point to, that you choose to sell your business yes. and you can sell it because you've got all these the systems. systems in place mm. and that has tangible value yeah and then you can go and sail in the mediterranean because yeah. you've got a water cash absolutely someone's paid you because yeah. of these systems yeah and also the other part of the systems is to um, put your knowledge into online programs and products. So like a lot, a lot of service providers don't have online programs. They don't have online products. But every service business can be templatized in a way that you can create a program that you can sell without being present. So people... Can, can you give us an example of... You know, when you one of your clients that you've done that for, that you've you know, like it might be a service business, and you've been able to help them to mm -hmm. create a, a tangible system. Mm. Yeah, I've I've got loads of examples, but for example, I had a client a few years back. They were uh, weight loss. They had developed a weight loss program, and uh, the guy. Um, is a strong man, like he's very strong, he's all about gym, fitness, muscle building, doing crazy stuff as a strong man, and the wife is a nutritionist, and I helped them create an online program that got them into Current Affair and Channel 10 interviews and all of that, like it was very, very successful, they made 40 grand in the first weekend of launching the program, and it was like, a hundred. I think it was 198 bucks, so it was just... I helped them put it in, in, in place, right, and write the messaging around it and then the, the marketing. Another client uh, had a video, uh, video influence accelerator package and they turned it into an online course. I think it was four weeks and, uh, yeah, she made, I think, 10 grand launching that program. Um, so it's about taking the knowledge that you actually facilitate when you work with clients one-on-one -on -one and turning that into an, a library of information mm. that can be parts video, parts PDF, parts written as like a blog post and you put that into a protected membership area of like a WordPress site 
And so people who buy from you will then get access with a special password and login instruction, and then they can digest the information in their own time. Mm. So you're really talking, you know, I mean, I think there's a bigger word with systemizing. It's about leverage. Isn't yeah, it? it's leverage, yeah. of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like getting that sort of fulcrum under the stone yeah. and really yep. kind of making it roll along because yep. you've got something that's so now powerful mm. um, because you can reuse it again. And that's yep. where the lifestyle element comes in, yeah. isn't it? It's freeing yourself up. So if you were doing face-to-face stuff, by systemizing it yeah. and by turning it into an online version, yeah. now you have the ability to walk away and it still yeah. happens. Well, for example, my husband, he's not a business person. He's, he was a chef for 26 years. He's been retired almost eight years. Um, actually, at the end of this month, he's retired um, eight years thanks to my businesses that mm. I've built. And he's years ago, we've had cockatiels before we became location independent. They were our pets, cockatiel birds. Mm. And so he wrote an ebook around how to care for your cockatiels. And he's selling that, I think, for 37 US dollars. And he made two sales last week. And we're not even promoting it. This is eight it. years on. This is on. Like, yeah, I think he wrote a book about five years ago or maybe six years ago. But every now and then he sells the book, even so we're not actively promoting it. So mm. people find the website and then they find the ebook and they go, oh, I've got cockatiels. I love my cockatiels. I want to make sure I care for them. And so they buy the ebook and it's like 37 bucks comes in. It's like, wow, this is great. Yeah, right? yeah, no so, effort, but yeah. I mean, the effort was done. The effort once, was done. You do it once. it's been systemized. Yeah. Yeah. And he's not a business person. So... People like us who are in business, we should utilize our abilities and actually, like you said, leverage, leverage our skills, our expertise, and at least have some form of online information that is either a course or an ebook or something that we can sell um, when we're not present. Mm, mm. Yeah. Fantastic, because yeah. you know that's really helping your market to get to know you too yeah. when you're not there. Yes. So that you know the times that you are there for the mm. face-to-face stuff, they're more connected to you yes. from the uh, the leveraged version of yourself. Yeah. So they're, they're really good tips and I especially love the systemizing your knowledge because I think, you know, we, we do need to do that and I, for one, um, am constantly challenging myself to do it and mm. just it's reinforced how important that is mm. and how I need to get off my backside and start that off for the new year as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the, the lifestyle business, you've, you've given us three really valuable tips to align fully with mm-hmm. your passion and genius mm-hmm. to make sure that you've got that yin and yang balance mm-hmm. as well that you know you've got the in and the out the, the up and the down you've, you're actually fully balanced mm-hmm. and congruent in that balance and thirdly to systemize your knowledge is there anything that you would like to leave as a final tip our wonderful listening yes tribe? absolutely i think um Above everything else, you've got to have fun in your business on a daily basis. If your business feels like a drag, then you need to revisit your values because chances are that you haven't set proper boundaries. And by boundaries, I mean, you know, you set um, there's certain things you accept and certain things you don't accept. And these are boundaries. These are non-negotiables. 
and they are aligned with your values. So if, if it feels like your business is, in, is dragging you down, you're no longer enjoying what you do, then it's either you're out of alignment with your boundaries, with your values, you haven't set enough boundaries, or your offer that you're selling is no longer lighting you up. And that's actually happened to me this last year. Um, I've recently rebranded into a new, new business with, the, with the, the business Alchemist because I wanted to bring in more of my spiritual side because I'm doing a lot of spiritual um, mastery work. I'm actually working with a shaman directly. I'm working with a, a mindset coach and I have a business coach that I'm working with for business purposes. And I wanted to bring in my spiritual side and actually talk about spirituality more and more because I see so many spiritual entrepreneurs, but they're totally in the woo-woo headspace. And it's not about that. Like you can be spiritual, but you're not getting anywhere because you're too much in your head. And that's where the yin and yang balance comes back in because you've got to bring in more of the physical, more of the action, more of the focus. Because you can talk about the law of attraction all day long, but it's not going to get you anywhere unless you actually take action. So it comes back to the yin and yang is, is to the day and the night and doing the stop and the go, the, the reflecting and then the taking action. It's all of that. And I want to bring that more into the marketplace because I think it's an underserved, under-talked um, topic mm. in mm. the industry, in the coaching industry especially. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think you need to have fun in your business. Mm. So if it's mm. not fun, then sit down with a journal and just find out why your business is no longer fun. And it might need, might need some adjustment, yeah. a new offer, a new direction. And that's perfectly fine yes and yeah. I think that you know that's uh, certainly something that uh, we may chat about again on another podcast is reinvention because mm. you're the reinvention queen <laughs> um, you know because I know that you do that yeah you, you know you follow your own advice there yeah. you if it's not been fun for you you've yeah. gone okay I've reflected yeah. and I am now changing my yeah. business model and you've yeah. successfully rebuilt it into yet another yeah. uh, significant business yeah. which is totally awesome um, so if you are wanting to connect with Monica, mm -hmm. um, how do how do we get a hold of you? What's your website? Uh, MonicaMundell.com. Monica with a K. Yep. Uh, Mundell, M-U-N-D-E-L-L. Or you can go to the client attraction, uh, alchemist.com. Um, and yeah, or reach out to me on Facebook. It's uh, like I'm on Facebook, I'm on Fantastic. LinkedIn. So. Yeah. yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. So if you're sitting in your car listening to Monica uh, today and you've got some value, please do like today's podcast and uh, do send us a comment as well as to what you've gained as the most valuable tip from today about how you can build some lifestyle into your business. And uh, we'll, we'll finish up now. Um, but thank you very much to the business alchemist. Uh, an extraordinary person is Monica. And uh, I am very lucky to have her sitting here with me because uh, it's very hard to get her here in our hometown of Adelaide and uh, very hard to sit her, sit her still for too long. So thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, your contribution today. Thank you, Sharon. I appreciate being here. It's very, very much appreciated. Excellent. We'll sign off and uh, see you on the next podcast. 
Welcome to episode six of the Achiever Network podcast. And I am super excited today to have Derek McManus with us. Now, Derek McManus is the founder of the Australian Centre for Human Durability. A little bit of background, I met Derek uh, way back in 1997, so it's certainly a very long time ago now. <laughs> <laughs> and that was three years after a significant event in Derek's life. And he'll share with you the details shortly. But Derek was shot 14 times in a siege. He was a Star Force officer with the Special Task and Rescue Group of the South Australian Police and his background included being a sniper, a recovery diver, and a counter-terrorist officer. Now, this particular day, he was involved in a siege, shot 14 times. What was I doing that day? I was actually reporting the news. So I was a journalist on Breakfast Radio at the time, and I distinctly remember this day because I was reporting on this very incident. And so I took a, a particularly strong interest in what was taking place because it was absolutely horrific. Um, now, 14 times he was laying on the ground, he should have been dead, but he used strategies to be able to keep himself alive and not only keep himself alive on the day, but to recover from that in an incredibly short period of time, psychologically as well as physically, to go on to help other people to have strategies to believe in themselves, to have confidence in the, themselves and to be able to tap into their own human durability. So today we have Derek with us. He's a keynote speaker, a training and development facilitator of a fantastic programs on human durability. Welcome, Derek. So excited to have you with us. Sensational, Sharon. I, I love that story. I actually didn't realise that you were a journalist and reporting it on the time, yeah. at the time. So, yeah, yeah that's a nice little insight for me as well. <laughs> yeah, look, it was um, a pretty uh, amazing incident because how many hours were you there on, on the ground? Uh, I was lying on the ground for three hours. The siege itself went for 41 hours. Uh, there were 2,000 rounds of ammunition fired between the offender and the police. Um, it's, Did you say 2,000 rounds? Yeah, I, I do gloss over those details because I'm so used to them. Uh, but yes, 2,000 rounds. Uh, and that's a conservative estimate uh, as to how many rounds were fired. We don't know exactly how many he fired, but they sort of did a, a guesstimate as to what it was. Um, and it was 41 hours. I mean, people remember things like the Waco, Texas siege and all those sorts of things. Overseas, they talk about the siege in South Australia uh, because it made international news. Mm. Uh, one of the nurses that were treating me uh, when I was in the Royal Adelaide Hospital, uh, while the siege was still on, and so I was taken to hospital, I was operated on for six hours and taken into uh, intensive care, and, and I was talking to the nurse as I was going through my recovery. Uh, he was Irish, and his family in Ireland were phoning him and asking him whether it was safe to be in South Australia. That's how much impact it had internationally. Wow. Yeah, look, I think everybody was glued to their radios at the time because it was such a long period of time. And um, for those of you that don't know the incident, this um, the background was the this particular offender was locked in his home and, yeah, he was just shooting and there was no way of being able to get to the house. Um, and so there was all of this vacant space around the house and he was holed up in the attic of yeah. the house and shooting 
anything and anyone that even tried to get near to the house. Okay, so a little bit more insight there. Uh, the property was a rural property, so it was a farming property. So around his house there was orchards, there was vineyards, and there was open space and a big dam. Um, so to get to the house, there was, the, the as you describe it, the vacant space. Uh, we were arresting him to bring him to court because he had failed to turn up in court uh, for 197 counts of fraud. Now, that's not something you normally associate with violence, but we knew the person's history. So we knew there was a potential. Um, and uh, it wasn't that he was shooting directly at everybody. Uh, there was one period where he obviously shot me. There was a, a period where he took direct shots at somebody else, another star group officer who was outside the house. Um, and then for the three hours that I was in the house... Oh, sorry. Um, you never outside, got to the house. <laughs> yeah, right outside the house. I was actually up against a wall outside the house. But while he was in the house, yes, he got up into the attic. But he was actually shooting randomly through the roof in a 360-degree arc. Now, nobody realised this at the time. But the effect that it had, and I think it was just collateral bonus for him, is that every time he was shooting in a 360-degree arc and somebody went to move and bullets came in their direction just randomly... Um, they've gone, oh my gosh, he knows uh, I'm out here, bullets are coming in my direction, I can't move. Um, so it, it really was just one of those confusing situations that you just couldn't take the risk. Mm, mm. Um, and so the guys that I was with, uh, they were pinned down because of his behaviours. They couldn't get to me. Uh, we had to call for backup. Backup came from town. Now, we were the response team. If something had happened to any other member of the public or another police officer, my team was the response team and we would have been there within 45 minutes max uh, because it was out in the Barossa Valley. So we had to get from Adelaide to there and 45 minutes max, we would have been on the ground and responding to it. But the response team was now in trouble. We had to go to the backup team who are out doing training and they were training on the other side of Adelaide. Uh, and they had to get back to Adelaide, re regroup, and then get out to the Barossa Valley. So that's why I was lying on the ground for three hours. Three hours. My mates couldn't get to me immediately because it was too dangerous. The response team had to get out to that location. And then the response team were only on the ground for about 15 minutes before they came in. Um, and no two ways about it. They risked their lives to come in and get mm -hmm. me. Part of their briefing before they came in was we don't know whether Derek's dead or alive. We haven't heard from him for three hours. You may be going in to pick up Derek. You may be going in to pick up a body. Mm. It's a very dangerous situation. We can't tell you you have to go in. Um, so if you don't want to go in, now's the time to put your hand up and say this is too dangerous. Wow. Every one of those guys stepped up to the plate and said, no, this is what I signed up for. I want to go in. Yeah. People that, behind them were amazing. arguing, saying, mm. hey, listen, I've had more experience. I've been in the section longer. I want to be going in. These guys lined up to risk their lives to come and save mine. Mm, so mm. heroes, absolute heroes. And uh, extraordinary because, you know, here you are on the ground and you're motionless for three hours because you've been shot 14 times with entry and exit points right through your body. Yep. Um, some of the things that you have gone through while you were on the ground, take us through a little background on that just before we get into our, what you know, the, the tips yeah. that we can gain because yeah. yeah. there's so, a lot from, from what you went through while you were just absolutely. So, motionless. Uh, we went up to the door, we knocked on the door, he didn't answer. 
I went down the side of the house looking for somewhere we could enter without uh, causing too much damage or uh, causing us a, a delay and we could get in there more efficiently, more safely. Um, as I went to look at this sliding door, he saw me, he actually fired 18 times in less than five seconds, hit me 14 times in less than five seconds. One bullet went through my left forearm, broke the bone, the radius in two places, uh, severed the artery, damaged nerve, stretched tendons there. A piece of shrapnel went into my right wrist, severed an artery in my right wrist, damaged nerves in there. Two bullets into my stomach, I lost 30 centimetres of small intestine, 15 centimetres of large intestine. Two bullets into my left thigh, uh, they missed the femoral artery, the largest artery in the body, by the width of a piece of paper, according to the doctor, that's the doctor's words. Uh, another bullet went into my right Achilles tendon, uh, took out 80% of the thickness of my Achilles tendon, um, and as I sit here and talk to you today, I still only have 20% of the thickness for that Achilles tendon still holding together. Okay. Um, another bullet went in behind my right knee, just needed a, a, a few stitches in there, and there are other bits of bullet or shrapnel that hit my body in different places and caused damage, but not major damage like the other ones. But then I was lying on the ground for three hours, bleeding uh, with that damage, while my mates were struggling physically and mentally, uh, struggling with themselves. How do we get into Derek? Is it safe? Uh, and I've had conversations with them. That conversation, that uh, dilemma they had would have been so traumatic mm, for them. They're, mm. they're good mates on the ground. I can just imagine what it would be like. Um, I was then uh, lying on the ground for three hours, monitoring my body, bleeding, monitoring my body, uh, closing down. Um, I felt my blood supply going lower and lower uh, because of my uh, first aid training that I'd had beforehand. It's fairly extensive in that section. Um, and so I felt the body's physiology changing. Uh, as the blood supply gets lower, the body naturally reroutes blood to the core. So I felt my arms going cold, my legs going cold as the blood was drained from them and pumped into the core of the body. At one point, uh, I realized that I was uh, down to the absolute core and blood was probably just going to my uh, lungs, my kidneys, my uh, heart and my brain. Uh, and then at one point, my vision got so low that even, sorry, my blood supply got so low that even my vision closed down. Mm, um, mm. And that turned to an absolutely pristine white. A uh, wow. lot of theories behind what that means to lots of different people. But for me, it was just this rationalization that there's not enough blood going to my brain. If I get out of this alive, I may have brain damage. That's what went through my mind at oh, that time. Jeepers, just to add to the uh, everything that you were going through, extraordinary. Yeah, mm. so it's at that point that I actually started fighting my hardest. Um, at the, up until that time, I had maintained my um, calm, my shock, slowed down my heart rate, slowed down my breathing, um, and actually monitored my body and made sure it was slow and calm. But at the time my vision closed down, that's when I started moving my body the little bit that I could just to give myself confidence I still had something left. Mm. Uh, and I started speaking out loud to myself. Mm. I said, Derek, don't give up. Derek, keep on fighting. Uh, fortunate things happen if our minds are open to seeing opportunities and possibilities. Two rifle shots were fired from outside the house back towards the house. And when I heard those two rifle shots, I knew it was my mates from Starry's on their way 
to come and get me. The cavalry was coming. And and that's exactly how I saw it. You know, there's more stories that I can go into, but um, when I heard those two shots, there was a dump of adrenaline in my body, endorphins from my brain, my vision kicked back to absolutely perfect. The boys came in in a truck 15 minutes after these two shots. Now, I talk about these time frames because that's what I do as a cop. We mm. keep track of time. So I was monitoring these things. Uh, but 15 minutes after those two rifle shots, the boys came in in a truck and uh, they opened up on the house in automatic fire from submachine guns and, and rifles. Uh, the shooter started firing a lot more and it was exactly as you said. It sounded like the cavalry coming. I remember watching cowboys and Indians. The cavalry... The, um, the, the, the circle of wagons is just about to be overrun by the Indians and that's what it felt like and the cavalry comes over the hill mm. this blast of gunfire and saves the day and that's exactly what I felt like while I was on the ground mm. um, they got me out of there they got me to Bill Griggs um, the doctor that treated me um, he actually said and I had this conversation with him months after the shooting I went in to see him just to thank him for what he did and find out from his perspective what it was like because it must have been horrendous for him uh, but he actually said, Derek, when I first got to you, I didn't know whether you were dead or alive. There was no colour, there was no movement, there was no breathing, there was no sound. I thought you were probably dead. But you took this last gasping breath and I thought, well, I may as well at least have a look. Which I thought was rather generous of him. <laughs> but what he didn't tell me was that he was standing in direct line of fire. Bullets were whizzing around his ears. So it wasn't just a thought process of I should try and save this guy's life or shouldn't I? It was should I risk my life? to try and save this guy's life. His commitment to that job, absolute hero. The Ambos, the uh, paramedics that were standing with him, absolute heroes, they committed to treating me for 10 minutes in direct line of fire. Mm, mm. Um, it, it is quite incredible and you know, just the, the extraordinary level of commitment and bravery, courage that you have in that kind of role. I think you know, the, the normal civilian is totally in awe of how you put yourself into such extraordinary situations as part of your job. But then it becomes more than a job in a situation like that where you have to make decisions in split seconds. You need to consider not only what's going to happen to you but what's going to happen to those people around you. I just find this an incredible story and we could talk for hours we on could. it. Um, so what to, to pick oh, up on yep. what you've just said there... Um, this sort of occupation needs to become more than a job, as you said. It's more than a job. It's a mm. passion. You mm. love doing what you do, but you see that it's for a bigger purpose. So it's not just a job where I'm enjoying myself or I'm achieving something. There is a bigger purpose to fulfilling this. Um, and you can't do this sort of job to those extremes unless you have trained to the extreme to be able to perform it. Yeah. And those extremes have taught me how to make split-second decisions, how to analyse a whole heap of information and process it down to a split-second decision of do I act, don't I act, um, do I shoot, don't I shoot, do I take this person's life, are there other options available to me? But it's extreme training and, and exposing yourself to those conditions on a regular basis where you get to go through that process and be comfortable with that process mm. that it is a part of your operating environment. And... It really has become part of who you are 
because you know that was a long time ago this scenario we're talking back in 1997 that was um, it seems like only yesterday to me because I remember it so very very clearly uh, and I'm sure you do too um, but you've lived your life from that day to uphold those principles of commitment and uh, just making yourself an extraordinary human not just as you were on that day, but for every day. So just to give you a little bit of background, uh, if you're sitting in your car or listening, um, Derek is is somebody who uh, just for fun will ride up uh, mountains and think that that's fun when most of us gasp our <laughs> last breath, you know, kind of right down the bottom somewhere. And, you know, he uh, next week is jumping out of a plane uh, for a good cause for one of the, the charities here. Just to be and... clear, I'm going to have a parachute <laughs> when I drop out of that plane, just to be clear. <laughs> but you do push, push yourself an extraordinary amount and, you know, you continue to put yourself in um, environments and situations that, that most of us wouldn't even contemplate doing. And that durability and resilience and so on that you had on that day many many years ago is something that you continue to uphold and it's it's your passion not only to live and breathe it yourself but also to teach it to others and to help others to you know gain those same skills so I'd, I'd love to have you share with us um, I'm, I'm just going to pick up on what you were talking about there this this passion for going out and doing the extremes um, lots of people say that I must be a, a lover of risk and um, I must be a risk junkie and all those sorts of things. And there's no two ways about it. I do some risky things in my life and I still do. Uh, my bike riding it's is... a gene, I... isn't it? Don't they reckon it's a gene? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I haven't heard that. I'll, yeah, I'll have to look, look that up, up now. Look it up. Um, but, you know, I ride up hills, but I come down even faster and just love the speed. You know, on my push bike, I've been to 94.6 kilometres an hour. Wow. Um, on my push bike, coming down hills, jump out of aircraft uh, and do all sorts of other extreme things, as mm. you as you describe. Um, but I actually don't see myself as a risk taker. Um, and, and this is something that was in place prior to the shooting and going into Star Group. Um, I'm not a risk taker. I see myself as a risk manager, not a risk taker. I take a look at what the risk is and I say to myself, do I have the experience? Do I have the training? Do I have the support? Do I have the infrastructure? Am I able to handle the worst consequence if that worst consequence does happen? Because it doesn't matter how much risk mitigation you uh, put in place, the risk is still there. Mm. So we have to be able to deal with not just the fact that we are making that choice, but we also have to anticipate what the consequence might be, both good and bad, and say, if either of those happen, can I actually deal with it? Um, and going through that thought process, which is what we will talk about in just a moment, um, gives you two levels of, com of comfort, two levels of comfort. Uh, the first level of comfort is, actually, if the worst happens, yes, I have the team, I have the support, I have the infrastructure, we can actually handle this. And when you put it into a business context, that also includes, do I have the finances? Is my family going to be able to handle this? All those sorts of things as well. Um, and if you actually do the analysis and you say, actually, if the worst happens, we can handle it, it means that you'll actually go into that challenge more confidently. Mm. You're not just going in saying, let's see how this works out. I hope it works out well. We'll probably be able to do it. You're actually able to say, we can handle it. Let's have a real crack at this. The other level of comfort 
is that you look at it and you go, oh my gosh, if that happens, it's going to destroy my business, it's going to destroy my family, it'll destroy my future, my career, whatever it might be. If it's going to destroy it and I can't handle it, you should be very comfortable in saying, I'm going to back away from it. Now that doesn't mean you don't do it ever. It just may mean you go away and you get some other uh, support, some other training, some other uh, information. You get somebody else in, you find some more finances to give you the ability to manage it. Mm. But you should be comfortable if you can't deal with it at that time, step away Mm. and just relax and say, no, I know it will destroy me. I'm not going to take that risk. Risk manager, not a risk taker. I love that takeaway. That's such a fantastic definition of of how we should go into our life, just to think about things really in depth, in advance. Um, you know, we're always being told that we need to plan, but I think you know how you've described it. It's it's looking at the the ultimate impact that that scenario is having on you, and being a risk manager is fantastic you're looking at it from so many different angles you're looking at it from so many different perspectives to be able to define whether this is really for you and whether it's a decision you want to make so i took that risk management approach not just to me but to the other people it's going to impact Mm. as well so prior to the shooting and when i first went into star group um, i actually went and had a conversation with my wife that i'm going into a job I'm going to become a sniper, I'm going to become a diver. And diving is a very dangerous Mm. uh, occupation in dark water where you can't see where you're going. Um, And I'm going to train with the SAS in counter-terrorism. So I actually had a conversation with my wife about the fact I may be shot and injured, I may be shot and killed. Now, if I die, what's life going to be like for you? What's going to be the impact on you? Will you be able to go on? Will you be able to support me? knowing that this is one of the risks. So it's not just how we deal with it, it's our families, our Mm. teams, those other people that it may impact. Um, Now, people say, my gosh, you had that conversation. Cops say, my gosh, you had that conversation. Um, And a lot of people look at choices they're making and the consequences of it, and we're very comfortable talking about the things we can deal with. But then there are those extremes that we go, oh my gosh, I know that can happen, but I'm really not comfortable talking about it because I don't know how I'll handle it. Um, so I'm just going to ignore it. I'm aware it's there, but I'm not going to talk about it too much. Now, these are the ones that I believe if they do happen, and then maybe the one percenters, you know, in an occupational health safety uh, risk management model, they are the one percenters, the very low risk of happening, but the massive impact, right? They are the ones that will destroy your life. And if you haven't averted your mind to it, then when it happens, you will be overwhelmed with emotion. Mm. And when your emotion goes high, your rational thinking goes low, and that's when you do things that you're not proud of. You make the mm. statements that you're not proud of, rather than being on a plane where, or in a space where your emotions and your rational thinking are on an even plane, and you can make plans, you can make decisions, you can get creative. Uh, but when the emotions go high and the rational thinking goes low, that's when we're overwhelmed Um, And that's when our lives are at high risk of being Mm, destroyed mm. by the things that we really know might happen. Yeah, that's uh, that's fantastic. Thank you. Look, we haven't even started on our three (laughs) points yet and how much have we gained already. Um, So, look, I do want to tap into uh, some of what you have definitely taken away over the years because you've had to reinvent yourself uh, out again from being a Star Force officer and your absolute commitment and passion is helping others to 
benefit from what you've learned from your experiences. And I know you've got three tips for us today, so I'd, I'd, I'd like to share what your, your tips are. What is your first tip that we can take away on how we as individuals can be durable, can be resilient? Can Okay, so I, I looked at what I did um, for the shooting um, and people have heard my story and they've gone, oh my gosh, you've got to come and tell our corporates about that. They've got to get the story. And I've gone, seriously? I don't get it. Uh, because the way I approached it was I knew the choices I was making and the consequences might come of it. Um, and my overview of the shooting is I went to work, I got shot, I fell down, I got up, I got better, I went back to work. And isn't that what everybody would want to do? And ultimately, if you're passionate about what you do, then that's what would happen. But most people become overwhelmed and hit those risks and they shy away from it. Um, so I've looked at how I prepared myself, my family, uh, everything else. And I, people spoke about me being this resilient person. And for a long time, yes, I embraced the resilience. Yes, it was I bounced back. But then I've looked at it and I thought, you know something? It's more than bouncing back. I'd actually prepared myself. I had put contingency plans in place that said, if I do happen to get shot and I don't die, what do I want to do as a perfect response to that? And so this is why I now talk about going beyond resilience to sustaining optimal performance. And that is the definition of human durability, going beyond resilience to sustaining optimal performance. It's about accepting responsibility for the choices we are making and the possible consequences of them and then saying if they do happen am I able to handle it uh, is my team able to handle it? are my family able to handle it as well um, and then saying if it does happen to me what is the perfect response to that now perfection sits on one end of a continuum perfection is something that we would all love to attain and mm -hmm. it's what we aspire to um, and if everything goes right, yes, you can attain perfection. But when things are going wrong that we don't have control over, sometimes we'll end up down the other end of the continuum where it's absolute chaos. We're not in control of everything. Everything's out of order. And what I've said to myself is, what's my absolute perfect response? This would be perfection. But if I end up down this other end of the continuum in chaos, what should my behaviours be down that end? What to get I... you back to... What can I do to influence those circumstances to get me back along that continuum closer to perfection? Now, I don't have to have perfection, and I think we rarely get perfection in our lives, but we've got to know what it looks like so that we've got something to aim for. Mm, I love that. What a, what a great mental model to work on, you know, because that is life. Life doesn't always work as we've planned. No. We certainly need to do the planning, but we've yep. also got to plan for when life doesn't work to plan. So Absolutely. I love that. What a great mental yeah, model. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, I, I think everything that we start in life has a catalyst. Either the catalyst is something's happened outside of our control and something's happened to us, or there's a catalyst within us that we want to achieve something. Um, and that achievement I've termed as our vision, but the vision is just the outcome you want from your actions you're about to take. Now, we always take actions because we see there's an opportunity to get something better in our lives. Right, and I call that the bright shiny things. We're chasing those bright mm. shiny things, and, and there's altruistically, a lot out there. <laughs> there's tons of them out there. But we always have this vision of the great outcome we want, and lots of people just go, "There's a great outcome. I'm going to go and do it," and they don't think of what the negative consequences are. They say, "Well, I want that great outcome. Other people have achieved it, so I should be able to do it too," and they don't think of those negatives. But I say that we've got to 
understand the outcome we want and then accept responsibility for chasing the shiny things but also accepting responsibility for the challenges that we might face. So have your vision but know what the opportunities are and the challenges are and prepare yourself for both extremes. Mm, mm, great, love it, love it. Uh, you've, you've got another tip here that I'd love to go into because um, the, the conversations that you had with yourself, the conversations that you had with your team on that day, I'm sure were very special. Um, yes. You want to talk about conversations Absolutely. and the impact that has on durability and Absolutely. maintaining the underlying, performance. The underlying philosophy behind all of the human durability is that we've got to have open, honest, confronting conversations with ourselves, with our team, with those people that we're going to impact by our actions, um, about the reality of the situation. And it's just about having a open, honest, confronting conversation about reality. If we can do that, then we can prepare ourselves properly for what might happen to us. But if we don't have that confronting conversation <coughs> about the realities, then we will be distracted um, and we won't be able to respond in exactly the way we want to. Uh, Nelson Mandela says that one and, and cannot... And sorry, that we've got to just allude to the fact that that little puppy was uh, my puppy sitting under the bed uh, trying to have a conversation, perfectly timed. <laughs> <laughs> she's obviously recognised some risk out there and she's letting us know about it. She is helping us to prepare for the future. <laughs> so, so sorry, I've, I've no, taken you right. off track there, but um, I, I love this concept of open, honest and confronting conversations because we like to think that we're having those with ourselves, but actually we don't. You know, having that confronting conversation around uh, what we're chasing, as we discussed before, that can be really hard because if you do see a bright, shiny object, you know, you kind of discount and you undermine that part of yourself that says this isn't really aligned to your true path here, you know, mm. and you, 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 you dismiss it. You don't, you know, you push it back into the background instead of actually listening and allowing that confronting voice to be heard that yeah, is actually yeah. going to save you from a whole lot of pain. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got six steps that take us to a higher self-esteem or a higher level of resilience. So you've got to get to resilient before you can move on to human durability. So I've got six steps to uh, resilience. Um, and it's exactly what you said. That's and, I, and I've now forgotten the train of what you were just saying. I was just saying how hard it is to have confronting conversations oh. with ourselves, yeah, <laughs> let absolutely. alone with others. So that is one of the parts of uh, the resilience model as well. It's about um, taking a look at what we are great at and what we're not great at. And when we recognise that there are big challenges, not just hiding it in the background somewhere, but saying to ourselves, actually... How have I managed those sorts of risks in the past? What have I done to overcome those sorts of risks? Um, and then being prepared to be confronting with ourselves, do I actually have the skills to manage those worst outcomes? Mm, yeah. mm. And can I uh, get your opinion on how do you have a confronting some conversation with another person? So let's say you're, you have a relationship with a work colleague or a business associate associate or even somebody in your personal life and you you recognize that there's a scenario that does need to be dealt with what are your tips on having a, a honest open and confronting conversation how do you go about that with somebody else um it, it is actually a challenge uh, because most people don't like having these confronting conversations certainly when i had the conversation with my wife um 
I think it was a little bit overwhelming for her mm-hmm. because she was aware of it, but she'd never spoken about it before. Mm. Um, this comes back to a conversation we were having just recently uh, about being authentic or being congruent with who you are. If you are speaking to someone from the heart, genuinely concerned about what might impact them, and you come across congruently with concern for them, the conversation is going to be a lot more comfortable and easier to have. It's also about understanding what the impact might be on them when you raise this uh, topic. Because when it's confronting, people will either rebel, they'll deny, they'll, they'll do all those sorts of things. Um, and, and, and it is a matter of finding a way to keep that conversation going so that they can be comfortable with it as well. A lot of people say, I need to have confronting conversations with my staff about their performance. How do I have open, honest, confronting conversations with them and get them to do the work I want them to do? Um, It's not about beating people over the head. It's not about being aggressive. It's about being uh, compassionate, understanding, um, and considerate Mm. about what the impact of that conversation is going to be on them. Now, sometimes it, it, it will be better to broach the subject with someone and say, hey, listen, we need to have a conversation about this. And when they rebel and go away, you let them go away. And then you approach them again another couple of days later and say, hey, listen, I'd like to actually follow up on that. Have you thought about that conversation? Oh, listen, I've really been overwhelmed. I'm I'm not sure how to handle it. But because they've got some mental preparation, they're feeling a little bit more comfortable with it now, they're probably willing to explore it just that little bit deeper. And then if they have to run away again, and it depends on the urgency. Um, If this conversation is something that is absolutely urgent, you may have to push and say, no, we have to have it now. And certainly in the star group environment, when we're going into a hostile environment where there could be offenders uh, willing to shoot us, then you know, we don't have time to say, no, give me 10 minutes to think about this. <laughs> that timing um, piece goes out the window. <laughs> yeah, so it depends on the urgency of the conversation you need to have. But if it's, if, if it's one, with one of your colleagues at work and it's something that we need to talk about, something that may be happening in a week's time or two weeks' time or a month's time, or we have to talk about the contingencies that if this business fails, how's it going to impact on our families? They're things that you can gently get into over a period of time. So it's about being considerate and understanding of what the impact of the conversation is going to be mm. on those people, working out the urgency of the conversation. I love that. Those those two tips that you've given us are just extraordinary. So um, I'm certainly going to take that away, uh, that you need the intention. So it's the two eyes for me, the intention first. Yeah. And then to be aware of the impact, to phrase things and be kind and compassionate being, and also manage the timing, uh, which is considerate of the impact that you're having on yeah. others. So intention and impact, which is brilliant. Um, okay, so it, just going off that, you've talked about having confronting conversations with others and also with our, ourselves. You know, for you on a daily basis, let's say you've got a a particularly daunting project. It might be a marketing project that you have for your business. Oh, you know me too well. (laughs) (laughs) I share your pain on that. My challenges come in different forms these days. (laughs) So how how do you have that confronting conversation with yourself over perhaps a scenario that is out of your own comfort zone, you know, so it's a skill set that you don't have? What's, what's the process that you would go through on that? Um, for that process, I would keep to what I call my five drivers for success. 
Um, and those five drivers, the first one is maintaining a sense of optimism, knowing that there's something greater out there, mm-hmm. and as a result of your efforts, you're going to be able to achieve it. Uh, the second one is believing in your ability to influence that outcome. Um, and most of the things that are going to happen in my life, I am able to influence, maybe not by myself, but uh, driver number five will talk about where we can get extra influence um, to to get outcomes we want. But it, So it's optimism. The second one is influence, believing in our ability to influence it. Because if you have no influence over it, mm. those things around you you control, you've got to take a completely different strategy. Mm. Um, the third driver is passion. If you've got a real passion for something, you know what you want and you know why you want it, then you will push through those barriers. You will mm-hmm. overcome those barriers. Your passion will take you through. Uh, the fourth driver is planning, um, and it's about putting plans in place. That, For the driver's model, the planning basis is just simply some idea of what you're going to deal with, some idea of how you're going to deal with it. right? And it really is as simple as that. Um, and, and that's about doing the contingency planning and going into this model that I now have for human durability. Uh, but the fifth one, most important to responding to your question, is support. If I've got a massive challenge, I look at my friends, my network, my family, and find out where I can get my support. Uh, and this is where I get into things like mastermind groups and, and find out other uh, professionals and experts and who can I network with to actually give me the support to help me overcome those challenges. Uh, because we probably have most of the resources we need within ourselves, but quite often we just doubt our own ability. Mm. But when someone says, this is what you need to do and this is how you can do it, you go, I've never even thought of that. There's extraordinary power in the masterminds. It's an Absolutely. incredible uh, thing to be part of a, a Brains Trust. What, a, and what an amazing five-step process. So I can see that that would work. So if we take that back to your marketing, so uh, you're optimistic that you can nail this marketing beast, that you have the ability to influence the outcome of it, that you are passionate about getting this under control this year right now to assist you to grow your business, that you have got a plan in place and that you know who you're going to see, when you're going to do things, how you're going to do things, and you've got the right people lined up to support you. I can see that it's not going to be anywhere near as confronting. Love it. That's just brilliant. And and it's nowhere near as confronting. It doesn't always make it easier to happen. Yeah. But when you understand the process, you go, actually... I can work through that. Yes, that's and, and right. it maintains that sense of optimism. I can work through this. Mm. It's still hard work. Mm. No two ways about it. Um, but every new challenge is always going to be new, uh, harder mm. than just following those old habits that we've always been in. Love um, so it. I, I do find my marketing a big challenge because it's new to me. I've never... Policemen don't necessarily need to market themselves. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> There's so many more more skills that you need now <laughs> outside of the star force. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that that's fantastic. So we've had two really incredible uh, guidelines today about human durability, about how to go beyond resilience and how to plan for risk and manage that in advance and how to have open honest and confronting conversations and what is your your third takeaway uh, for for us listening in um the third takeaway is that adversity is the biggest killer of creativity we'll ever encounter and we find adverse times when we haven't properly prepared for them 
when things are going out of control. They're not happening exactly the way we would like to. Um, and that adversity starts to overwhelm us. And once we start getting overwhelmed, that's when I talk about our emotions going high and our rational thinking going low. So in a normal day, our emotions and our rational thinking sit on an even plane. And we can contemplate, we can plan, we can discuss, we can get mm. creative, we can think outside the square and we can take our time to do all these things. But as soon as we start getting overwhelmed, we go into panic, we go into mm. fight and flight mode, right? And we take the first action that is open to us that we are aware of. So when our emotions are high and our rational thinking is low, that's when we take these actions. We go, oh my gosh, this worked for me in the past. I'm going to try it again because this might happen, might work for me this time. And we take actions or we say things that we really aren't proud of. And we know better, but in those moments, we can't get creative. Now, it's not about saying we don't have emotion, right? And we should rule emotion out of our lives and all the rest of it. For me, going into star group, going into these environments where I'm not fully in control and I'm relying on uh, assessing the behaviours of other people, I understand my emotions are going to go high when I get impacted by something that I'm not totally prepared for. But because of the training I've done... I'm able to go, oh my gosh, my emotions have gone high. Oh no, I have the skills and the emotions come back down very quickly and the rational thinking comes back up. And that's what we all need to do. Just have some idea of what we're going to deal with, some idea of how we're going to deal with it, which is that fourth step, uh, fourth step in the drivers. Uh, and if we have that some idea of how we're going to deal with it, our emotions will come down. We go, oh no, hang on, I do have some idea of how I'm going to manage this. And our emotions come down, our rational thinking comes back up. So if we can manage the adversity, right, and take the stress out of the adversity, our life becomes an awful lot easier. We can manage that adversity and manage the emotions either by training, right, and Star Group is obviously some massively intense training, but we can do that sort of training in our minds for our family, for our sport, for our business as well. We go through training scenarios for businesses, um, and so it's extrapolating that. Um, so that's one way of dealing with the adversity is just preparing ourselves, training ourselves for it. Another way is to just introduce some humour. And it's just about having a moment of lightheartedness. And throughout my story of the shooting, there are times where I am in the most adverse situations and I have this bizarre thought. And when I'm talking to people at a keynote, um, I've got 2,000 people cracking up laughing at me while I'm being shot 14 times mm. because of the thoughts that I'm having. It's not that I disregard risk, it's that I've done the training beforehand. The emotion comes back down, I'm able to have a moment of lightheartedness, the mind relaxes, the body relaxes, and we're able to see opportunities or possibilities outside the, outside the square. Um, the third way of dealing with the adversity is doing the planning beforehand. Um, and uh, the last way is sometimes it just takes somebody else to reach out and put their hand on your shoulder depending how well you know each other, give each other a hug and say it's going to be all right. doesn't change the reality of the circumstances, but it changes you inside. Your mind relaxes, your body relaxes, and you go, oh, actually, I've got some support here. Maybe there's something to be more optimistic about. Um, our emotions come down and the rational thinking comes back up. We see opportunities or possibilities that we don't see in the midst of the adversity. Uh, when we get into adverse times, that's when we get very, very tunnel vision mm. and we just focus on the problem. If we can relax in the middle of it 
we do see those things just that little bit outside of that tunnel vision um, and some people go how can you possibly do that Mm, there, there are mm. some tips there. There's some really good tips there because, you know, this is such a, a critical area to discuss in, in this day and age where we are being bombarded from every direction with stressors and, and things that, you know, cause life to become um, tougher and harder, you know, that, that we've got so much pressure on us, you know, financially and work-wise, you know, we've got um, enormous stresses in the modern age. So I think, you know, when you look at some of those tips that you've given us to be able to uh, look at, what is the humour in this? You know, how do I need to revisit my planning and look for just stepping it out in a logical way and, you know, coming to, a, again, a place of calm? Um, I think that's incredibly important because, you know, we do have these coping resources that get stretched to the limit that we're okay, 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 okay. And then it's just that little tiny incident yeah. that all of a sudden... It's like our whole world's fallen apart, and it might not be a major adversity. Sometimes it can be a oh, tiny little stressor little thing, yeah. that, the, that the old creates throw the away crack. line of the uh, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah, yeah, know. and and so I think they're really good tips just to you know have in front of us to um, stop ourselves and to think and to get back to well, you know, what is the next step I need to take. You know, uh, I think that's totally awesome. Um, you did talk a little bit about looking to manage your emotional response, that we need to level out that um, emotional response. So if you are feeling completely overwhelmed where you don't have that ability to compartmentalise your emotions, how do, how do you start if you're just completely out of kilter and you go, how do I stabilise? What do you do? So the prior to going into the shooting, I, I took a look at, if I get into a situation where everything is absolute chaos, how will I manage it? I knew there were four things that I needed to do in that moment. I need to control panic, um, not let panic take control over the situation. The best way to control panic is have some idea of what you're going to deal with, some idea of how you're going to deal with it. Yes, it's out of control, but oh my gosh, I've got some idea. Okay, so the panic comes down. We need to. Con I needed to control shock. That was one of the things that I needed to do. If I get shot... There's going to be bleeding, there's going to be movement of blood in the body um, and that causes shock. It gets drained away from the brain, it gets drained away from the peripherals. So I knew I needed to control shock in my body. But what I say to businesses is what's the shock effect on your business? When you go into that moment of getting overwhelmed, where are your resources pooled, where your focus is, but where do your resources really need to be to actually respond to it? So that's about controlling the shock response to it. Um, the third one was I needed to control my breathing and slow down my breathing. This is one of the most powerful things that we can do because once we start getting into that overwhelm, we start going short of breath. We start going really contracted in everything that we do um, and if we can actually breathe deeply and there's a, a four second square breathing process that I talk about, uh, four seconds in, hold for four seconds, out for four seconds, hold for four seconds, in for four seconds, and we just do that. Um, that actually just um, re-oxygenates the blood. Yeah, and it can be quite meditational. Can't oh, it? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that happens is that when we re-oxygenate the blood, uh, the body starts going, oh, I've still got plenty of oxygen. I can actually re uh, uh, release this to the rest of the body, and it allows it to go back to the brain because you're kind of relaxed. 
Um, and the, fir- the fourth one was that I needed to slow down my heart rate. Mm. Um, and to slow down my heart rate, that was largely part of slowing down my breathing. Um, but I knew if the heart wasn't pumping as fast, I wouldn't bleed as much. Um, and so that actually combined with controlling shock and my first aid response to it. Um, so, so really you're using quite a lot of physical techniques to be able to manage the emotional response, which is incredibly valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Although I, I do, they, are, they are physical techniques, but they're controlled by our minds. Mm. And when we can calm our mind, we can then start looking outside the square. And how do we do that? Is the training, right? The training of ourselves, having those open, honest, confronting conversations about this is a reality. I've already thought about it. Don't have a massive plan, but I've got a thought about it. And if you've got some thought about it, it allows you to take a step forward rather than going into procrastination. I don't know how to deal with this. Let me think about it for five seconds, five minutes, five hours. Yeah. And I'm be. loving that because you've pre-thought through the chaos scenario yep. and so you've looked at what your emotional response is going to be potentially if you fall into that chaos. So you're already pre-prepared yep. if it does happen. So, yeah, that's brilliant. The other thing I'm just going to mention very quickly is don't expect perfection of yourself. We know what perfection is, but we may end up down in chaos as long as you're able to influence yourself to get back towards the perfection, accept that. Yeah. You've had a good influence on a, a situation. Yeah, amazing. Well, um, we probably do need to wrap up for today, but I'm not letting you get away too easily, Derek, because this is you far too interesting, that conversation. And uh, I know that, uh, you know, our beautiful listeners uh, are probably intrigued by your story, to say the least, but certainly inspired as well from the value that you've given us about how we can manage uh, to tap into our own level of resilience and optimism and durability. So if you were going to leave us with, with one thing, which is your star, star moment of what you've learned from your life and what you would like to bless us with right now, what would that bonus tip be? Uh, listen, I'm, the bonus tip, and it's not really a bonus tip because I'm going to reflect back on the open, honest, confronting conversations that's the underpinning philosophy behind all of this. But what I will add to it uh, is something I was going to mention before, and I think I only got halfway through it. Um, it's the Nelson Mandela quote. Nelson Mandela, we all admire that man for his patience, his perseverance, his understanding of other people. Um, but uh, I love hearing quotes and, and making the quotes work for me. Nelson Mandela said, one cannot prepare for the future while secretly pretending it's not going to happen. Now I reflect on that and I say that we all know we're making a choice, there are these things that could happen, but if we don't actually think about them and address them, then we're secretly pretending it's not going to happen, and when they do happen, there's the potential there for, to destroy our lives one way or another. So it's just about having those con- uh, confronting conversations with ourselves. But being gentle in the process as well. Getting those two levels of comfort, either, wow, I can handle this, and go hard at it, or actually, no, something will destroy my life. It's not exactly the outcome I want. I'm going to step away from it and find a different way to achieve the same thing. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Well, that is Derek McManus, and you can see now why the Australian Centre for Human Durability 
uh, is very, very busy. You are sought after for your stage speaking and you are certainly sought after for training and development. And I know that you have a, a new training program coming up on human durability, which yes. I'm very much looking forward to seeing. Yeah, thank you. I, mm. Most of my training that I do is uh, for corporates and I travel the world. Uh, I'm going to Vietnam in uh, May. Um, but I've now started running my public programs mm. and I have one of those coming up in Adelaide on the 25th of March uh, here in Adelaide and uh, people can get onto my website, give me a phone call, send me an email uh, and I'll send them out some details without Fantastic. any expectation that they do turn up. I'll just send them the information. Brilliant. And I'm sure that uh, anyone who does make the time and effort to go will benefit enormously. Yeah. So it's, it's also advertised on Eventbrite. Excellent. Human durability. So look up Derek McManus, D-E-R-R-I-C-K, McManus, M-C-M-A-N-U-S. And so that is the Achiever Network podcast for today. I hope you've enjoyed it and got lots of value. And uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Absolute Derek. pleasure, Sharon. Absolute pleasure. Your reporter skills uh, in interviewing obviously came to the fore. Thanks, <laughs> thanks so much. Thank you, Derek. Bye for now. Welcome to episode six of the Achiever Network podcast and I am super excited today to have Derek McManus with us. Now Derek McManus is the founder of the Australian Centre for Human Durability. A little bit of background, I met Derek uh, way back in 1997 so it's certainly a very long time ago now <laughs> <laughs> and that was three years after a significant event in Derek's life. And he'll share with you the details shortly. But Derek was shot 14 times in a siege. He was a Star Force officer with the Special Task and Rescue Group of the South Australian Police. And his background included being a sniper, a recovery diver and a counter-terrorist officer. Now, this particular day, he was involved in a siege, shot 14 times. What was I doing that day? I was actually reporting the news. So I was a journalist on Breakfast Radio at the time and I distinctly remember this day because I was reporting on this very incident. And so I took a, a particularly strong interest in what was taking place because it was absolutely horrific. Um, now, 14 times he was laying on the ground. He should have been dead but he used strategies to be able to keep himself alive and not only keep himself alive on the day, but to recover from that in an incredibly short period of time, psychologically as well as physically, to go on to help other people to have strategies to believe in themselves, to have confidence in the, themselves and to be able to tap into their own human durability. So today we have Derek with us. He's a keynote speaker, a training and development facilitator of uh, fantastic programs on human dur durability. Welcome, Derek. So excited to have you with us. Sensational, Sharon. I, I love that story. I actually didn't realise that you were a journalist and reporting on the time, yeah. at the time. So yeah. yeah, that's a nice little insight for me as well. <laughs> Yeah, look, it was um, a pretty uh, amazing incident because how many hours were you there on, on the ground? Uh, I was lying on the ground for three hours. The siege itself went for 41 hours. Uh, there were 2,000 rounds of ammunition fired between the offender and the police. 
Um, it's, Did you say 2,000 rounds? Yeah, I, I do gloss over those details because I'm so used to them. Uh, but yes, 2,000 rounds. Uh, and that's a conservative estimate uh, as to how many rounds were fired. We don't know exactly how many he fired, but they sort of did a, a guesstimate as to what it was. Um, and it was 41 hours. I mean, people remember things like the Waco, Texas siege and all those sorts of things. Overseas, they talk about the siege in South Australia uh, because it made international news. Mm. Uh, one of the nurses that were treating me uh, when I was in the Royal Adelaide Hospital, uh, while the siege was still on, so I, I was taken to hospital, I was operated on for six hours and taken into uh, intensive care and, and I was talking to the nurse as I was going through my recovery. Uh, he was Irish and his family in Ireland were phoning him and asking him whether it was safe to be in South Australia. That's how much impact it had internationally. Wow. Yeah, look, I think everybody was glued to their radios at the time because it was such a long period of time. And um, for those of you that don't know the incident, this um, the background was the this particular offender was locked in his home and, yeah, he was just shooting and there was no way of being able to get to the house. Um, and so there was all of this vacant space around the house and he was holed up in the attic of yeah. the house and shooting anything and anyone that even tried to get near to the house. Okay, so a little bit more insight there. Uh, the property was a rural property, so it was a farming property. So around his house there was orchards, there was vineyards, and there was open space and a big dam. Um, so to get to the house, there was, the, the as you describe it, the vacant space. Uh, we were arresting him to bring him to court because he had failed to turn up in court uh, for 197 counts of fraud. Whew. Now, that's not something you normally associate with violence, but we knew the person's history. So we knew there was a potential. Um, and uh, it wasn't that he was shooting directly at everybody. Uh, there was one period where he obviously shot me. There was a, a period where he took direct shots at somebody else, another star group officer who was outside the house. Um, and then for the three hours that I was in the house, oh, sorry. Um, you never outside, got to the house. <laughs> yeah, right outside the house. I was actually up against a wall outside the house. But while he was in the house, yes, he got up into the attic. But he was actually shooting randomly through the roof in a 360-degree arc. Now, nobody realised this at the time, but the effect that it had, and I think it was just collateral bonus for him, is that every time he was shooting in a 360-degree arc and somebody went to move and bullets came in their direction just randomly, um, they'd gone, oh, my gosh, he knows uh, I'm out here, bullets coming in my direction, I can't move. Um, so it, it really was just one of those confusing situations that you just couldn't take the risk. Mm, mm. Um, and so the guys that I was with... Uh, they were pinned down because of his behaviours. They couldn't get to me. Uh, we had to call for backup. Backup came from town. Now, we were the response team. If something had happened to any other member of the public or another police officer, my team was the response team, and we would have been there within 45 minutes max uh, because it was out in the Barossa Valley, so we had to get from Adelaide to there, and at 45 minutes max, we would have been on the ground and responding to it. But the response team was now in trouble. We had to go to the backup team who were out doing training and they were training on the other side of Adelaide. 
uh, and they had to get back to Adelaide, re regroup, and then get out to the Brosser Valley. So that's why I was lying on the ground for three hours. Three hours. My mates couldn't get to me immediately because it was too dangerous. The response team had to get out to that location, and then the response team were only on the ground for about 15 minutes before they came in. Um, and no two ways about it, they risked their lives to come in and get mm, me. Mm. Part of their briefing before they came in was, we don't know whether Derek's dead or alive, we haven't heard from him for three hours. You may be going in to pick up Derek, you may be going in to pick up a body. Mm. It's a very dangerous situation. We can't tell you you have to go in. Um, so if you don't want to go in, now's the time to put your hand up and say this is too dangerous. Wow. Every one of those guys stepped up to the plate and said no. This is what I signed up for. I want to go in. Yeah, People that, behind them were amazing. arguing, saying, mm. hey, listen, I've had more experience. I've been in the section longer. I want to be going in. These guys lined up to risk their lives to come and save mine. Mm. So mm. heroes, absolute heroes. And uh, extraordinary because, you know, here you are on the ground and you're motionless for three hours because you've been shot 14 times with entry and exit points right through your body. Yep. Um, some of the things that you have gone through while you were on the ground, take us through a little background on that just before we get into our, what you know, the, the tips yeah. that we can gain because yeah. yeah. there's so, a lot from, from what you went through while you were just absolutely. So, motionless. Uh, we went up to the door, we knocked on the door, he didn't answer. I went down the side of the house looking for somewhere we could enter without... Uh, causing too much damage or uh, causing us a, a delay and we could get in there more efficiently, more safely. Um, as I went to look at this sliding door, he saw me, he actually fired 18 times in less than five seconds, hit me 14 times in less than five seconds. One bullet went through my left forearm, broke the bone, the radius in two places, uh, severed the artery, damaged nerve, stretched tendons there. A piece of shrapnel went into my right wrist severed an artery in my right wrist, damaged nerves in there, two bullets into my stomach, I lost 30 centimetres of small intestine, 15 centimetres of large intestine, two bullets into my left thigh, uh, they missed the femoral artery, the largest artery in the body, by the width of a piece of paper, according oh. to the doctor, that's the doctor's words. Uh, another bullet went into my right Achilles tendon, uh, took out 80% of the thickness of my Achilles tendon, um, and as I sit here and talk to you today, I still only have 20% of the thickness for that Achilles tendon still holding together. Um, another bullet went in behind my right knee, just needed a, a, a few stitches in there. And there are other bits of bullet or shrapnel that hit my body in different places and caused damage, but not major damage like the other ones. But then I was lying on the ground for three hours bleeding uh, with that damage while my mates were struggling physically and mentally uh, struggling with themselves. How do we get into Derek? Is it safe? Uh, and I've had conversations with them. That conversation, that uh, dilemma they had would have been so traumatic mm, for them. They're, mm. they're good mates on the ground. I can just imagine what it would be like. Um, I was then uh, lying on the ground for three hours, monitoring my body, bleeding, monitoring my body, uh, closing down. Um, I felt my blood supply going lower and lower uh, because my uh, first aid training that I'd had beforehand. It's fairly extensive in that section. Um, and so I felt the body's physiology changing. Uh, as the blood supply gets lower, the body naturally reroutes blood to the core. So I felt my arms going cold, my legs going cold as the blood was drained from them and pumped into the core of the body. At one point, uh, I realized that I was 
down to the absolute core and blood was probably just going to my uh, lungs, my kidneys, my uh, heart and my brain. Uh, and then at one point my vision got so low that even, sorry, my blood supply got so low that even my vision closed down. Mm, um, mm. And that turned to an absolutely pristine white. Uh, wow. A lot of theories behind what that means to lots of different people. But for me, it was just this rationalisation that there's not enough blood going to my brain. If I get out of this alive, I may have brain damage. That's what went through my mind at that oh, time. Jeepers, just to add to the uh, everything that you were going through, extraordinary. Yeah, mm. so it's at that point that I actually started fighting my hardest. Um, at the, Up until that time, I had maintained my... Um, calm, my shock, slowed down my heart rate, slowed down my breathing um, and actually monitored my body and made sure it was slow and calm. But at the time my vision closed down, that's when I started moving my body the little bit that I could just to give myself confidence I still had something left mm. uh, and I started speaking out loud to myself. Mm. I said, Derek, don't give up. Derek, keep on fighting. Uh, fortunate things happen if our minds are open to seeing opportunities and possibilities. Two rifle shots were fired from outside the house back towards the house. When I heard those two rifle shots, I knew it was my mates from Starry's on their way to come and get me. The cavalry was coming. And, and that's exactly how I saw it. You know, there's more stories that I can go into, but um, when I heard those two shots, there was a dump of adrenaline in my body, endorphins from my brain, my vision kicked back to absolutely perfect. The boys came in in a truck 15 minutes after these two shots. Now, I talk about these time frames because that's what I do as a cop. We mm. keep track of time. So I was monitoring these things. Uh, but 15 minutes after those two rifle shots, the boys came in in a truck and uh, they opened up on the house in automatic fire from submachine guns and, and rifles. Uh, the shooter started firing a lot more and it was exactly as you said. It sounded like the cavalry coming. I remember watching cowboys and Indians. The, caval the, um, the, the, the circle of wagons is just about to be overrun by the Indians, and that's what it felt like. And the cavalry comes over the hill, mm. this blast of gunfire, and saves the day. And that's exactly what I felt like while I was on the ground. Mm. Um, they got me out of there. They got me to Bill Griggs, um, the doctor that treated me. Um, he actually said, and I had this conversation with him months after the shooting. I went in to see him just to thank him for what he did and find out from his perspective what it was like because it must have been horrendous for him. Uh, but he actually said, Derek, when I first got to you, I didn't know whether you were dead or alive. There was no colour, there was no movement, there was no breathing, there was no sound. I thought you were probably dead. But you took this last gasping breath and I thought, well, I may as well at least have a look, which I thought was rather generous of him. <laughs> but what he didn't tell me was that he was standing in direct line of fire. Bullets were whizzing around his ears. So it wasn't just a thought process of, I should try and save this guy's life, or shouldn't I? It was, should I risk my life to try and save this guy's life? His commitment to that job, absolute hero. The Ambos, the uh, paramedics that were standing with him, absolute heroes, they committed to treating me for 10 minutes in direct line of fire. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is quite incredible, and, you know, just the the extraordinary level of commitment and bravery, courage that you have in that kind of role. I think, you know, the, the normal civilian is totally in awe of 
how you put yourself into such extraordinary situations as part of your job. But then it becomes more than a job in a situation like that where you have to make decisions in split seconds. You need to consider not only what's going to happen to you but what's going to happen to those people around you. I just find this an incredible story and we could talk for hours we on could. it. Um, so what I'd, to, to pick oh, up on yep. what you've just said there, um, this sort of occupation needs to become more than a job. As you said, it's more than a job. It's a mm. passion. You mm. love doing what you do but you see that it's for a bigger purpose so it's not just a job where I'm enjoying myself or I'm achieving something there is a bigger purpose to fulfilling this um, and you can't do this sort of job to those extremes unless you have trained to the extreme to be able to perform it yeah. and those extremes have taught me how to make split-second decisions how to analyze a whole heap of information and process it down to a split-second decision of do I act don't I act um, do I shoot? Don't I shoot? Do I take this person's life? Are there other options available to me? But it's extreme training and, and exposing yourself to those conditions on a regular basis where you get to go through that process and be comfortable with that process, mm. that it is a part of your operating environment. And it really has become part of who you are because, you know, that was a long time ago, this scenario. We're talking back in 1997. That was, um, it seems like only yesterday to me because I remember it so very, very clearly. Uh, and I'm sure you do too. Um, but you've lived your life from that day to uphold those principles of commitment and uh, just making yourself an extraordinary human, not just as you were on that day, but for every day. So just to give you a little bit of background, uh, if you're sitting in your car or listening, um, Derek is, is somebody who uh, just for fun will ride up uh, mountains and think that that's fun when most of us gasp our <laughs> last breath, you know, kind of right down the bottom somewhere. And, you know, he uh, next week is jumping out of a plane uh, for a good cause for one of the, the charities here. Just to be and clear, I'm going to have a parachute <laughs> when I drop out of that plane, just to be clear. <laughs> but you do push, push yourself an extraordinary amount and, you know, you continue to put yourself in um, environments and situations that, that most of us wouldn't even contemplate doing. And that durability and resilience and so on that you had on that day many many years ago is something that you continue to uphold and it's it's your passion not only to live and breathe it yourself but also to teach it to others and to help others to you know gain those same skills so I'd, I'd love to have you share with us um, I'm, I'm just going to pick up on what you were talking about there this this passion for going out and doing the extremes um, lots of people say that I must be a, a lover of risk and um, I must be a risk junkie and all those sorts of things. And there's no two ways about it. I do some risky things in my life and I still do. Uh, my bike riding it's is... It's a gene, I... isn't it? Don't they reckon it's a gene? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I haven't heard that. I'll, yeah, I'll have to look, look that up, up now. Look it up. Um, but, you know, I ride up hills, but I come down even faster and just love the speed. You know, on my push bike, I've been to 94.6 kilometres an hour. Wow. Um, on my push bike, coming down hills, jump out of aircraft uh, and do all sorts of other extreme things, as mm. you as you describe. Um, but I actually don't see myself as a risk taker. Um, and, and this is something that was in place prior to the shooting and going into Star Group. Um, I'm not a risk taker. I see myself as a risk manager 
not a risk taker. I take a look at what the risk is and I say to myself, do I have the experience? Do I have the training? Do I have the support? Do I have the infrastructure? Am I able to handle the worst consequence if that worst consequence does happen? Because it doesn't matter how much risk mitigation you uh, put in place, the risk is still there. Mm. So we have to be able to deal with not just the fact that we are making that choice, but we, have, we also have to anticipate what the consequence might be, both good and bad, and say, if either of those happen, can I actually deal with it? Um, and going through that thought process, which is what we will talk about in just a moment, um, gives you two levels of, com- of comfort, two levels of comfort. Uh, the first level of comfort is, actually, if the worst happens, yes, I have the team, I have the support, I have the infrastructure, we can actually handle this. And when you put it into a business context, that also includes, do I have the finances? Is my family going to be able to handle this? All those sorts of things as well. Um, and if you actually do the analysis and you say, actually, if the worst happens, we can handle it, it means that you'll actually go into that challenge more confidently. Mm. You're not just going in saying, let's see how this works out. I hope it works out well. We'll probably be able to do it. You're actually able to say, we can handle it. Let's have a real crack at this. The other level of comfort is that you look at it and you go, oh, my gosh. If that happens, it's going to destroy my business, it's going to destroy my family, it'll destroy my future, my career, whatever it might be. If it's going to destroy it and I can't handle it, you should be very comfortable in saying, I'm going to back away from it. Now, that doesn't mean you don't do it ever. It just may mean you go away and you get some other uh, support, some other training, some other uh, information. You get somebody else in and you find some more finances to give you the ability to manage it. Mm. But you should be comfortable if you can't deal with it at that time, step away Mm. and just relax and say, no, I know it will destroy me. I'm not going to take that risk. Risk manager, not a risk taker. I love that takeaway. That's such a fantastic definition of, of how we should go into our life, just to think about things really in depth in advance um you know we're always being told that we need to plan but i think you know how you've described it it's it's looking at the the ultimate impact that that scenario is having on you and being a risk manager is fantastic you're looking at it from so many different angles you're looking at it from so many different perspectives to be able to define whether this is really for you and whether it's a decision you want to make so i took that risk management approach not just to me but to the other people it's going to impact Mm. as well so prior to the shooting and when i first went into star group um, i actually went and had a conversation with my wife that i'm going into a job I'm going to become a sniper, I'm going to become a diver. And diving is a very dangerous Mm. uh, occupation in dark water where you can't see where you're going. Um, And I'm going to train with the SAS in counter-terrorism. So I actually had a conversation with my wife about the fact I may be shot and injured, I may be shot and killed. Now, if I die, what's life going to be like for you? What's going to be the impact on you? Will you be able to go on? Will you be able to support me? knowing that this is one of the risks. So it's not just how we deal with it, it's our families, our mm. teams, those other people that it may impact. Um, now, people say, my gosh, you had that conversation. Cops say, my gosh, you had that conversation. Um, and a lot of people look at choices they're making and the consequences of it, and we're very comfortable talking about the things that we can deal with. But then there are those extremes that we go, oh my gosh, I know that can happen, but I'm really not comfortable talking about it because I don't know how I handle it. Um, so I'm just going to ignore it. I'm aware it's there, 
but I'm not going to talk about it too much. Now, these are the ones that I believe if they do happen, and they're maybe the one percenters, you know, in an occupational health safety uh, risk management model, they are the one percenters, the very low risk of happening, but the massive impact, right? They are the ones that will destroy your life. And if you haven't averted your mind to it, then when it happens, you will be overwhelmed with emotion. Mm. And when your emotion goes high, your rational thinking goes low, and that's when you do things that you're not proud of. You make the mm. statements that you're not proud of, rather than being on a plane where, or in a space where your emotions and your rational thinking are on an even plane, and you can make plans, you can make decisions, you can get creative. Uh, but when the emotions go high and the rational thinking goes low, that's when we're overwhelmed, um, and that's when our lives are at high risk of being mm, destroyed mm. by the things that we really know might happen. Yeah, that's uh, that's fantastic. Thank you. Look, we we haven't even started on our three <laughs> points yet, and how much have we gained already? Yeah. Um, so, look, I do want to tap into uh, some of what you have definitely taken away over the years, because you've had to reinvent yourself uh, out ag again from being a Star Force officer and your absolute commitment and passion is helping others to uh, benefit from what you've learned from your experiences. And I know you've got three tips for us today, so I'd, I'd, I'd like to share what your, your tips are. What is your first tip that we can take away on how we as individuals can be durable, can be resilient? Can Okay, so I, I looked at what I did um, for the shooting um, and people have heard my story and they've gone oh my gosh you've got to come and tell our corporates about that they've got to hear the story and I've gone seriously I don't get it uh, because the way I approached it was I knew the choices I was making and the consequences that might come of it um, and my overview of the shooting is I went to work I got shot I fell down I got up I got better I went back to work and isn't that what everybody would want to do and ultimately if you're passionate about what you do then that's what would happen. But most people become overwhelmed and hit those risks and they shy away from it. Um, so I've looked at how I prepared myself, my family, uh, everything else. And I, people spoke about me being this resilient person. And for a long time, yes, I embraced the resilience. Yes, it was, I bounced back. But then I've looked at it and I thought, you know something, it's more than bouncing back. I'd actually prepared myself. I had put contingency plans in place that said, if I do happen to get shot and I don't die, what do I want to do as a perfect response to that? And so this is why I now talk about going beyond resilience to sustaining optimal performance. And that is the definition of human durability, going beyond resilience to sustaining optimal performance. It's about accepting responsibility for the choices we are making and the possible consequences of them and then saying if they do happen am I able to handle it uh, is my team able to handle it are my family able to handle it as well um, and then saying if it does happen to me what is the perfect response to that now perfection sits on one end of a continuum perfection is something that we would all love to attain and mm -hmm. it's what we aspire to um, and if everything goes right, yes, you can attain perfection. But when things are going wrong that we don't have control over, sometimes we'll end up down the other end of the continuum where it's absolute chaos. We're not in control of everything. Everything's out of order. And what I've said to myself is, what's my absolute perfect response? This would be perfection. But if I end up down this other end of the continuum in chaos, what should my behaviours be down that end? 
what to get I, you back to perfection. What can I do to influence those circumstances to get me back along that continuum closer to perfection? Now, I don't have to have perfection, and I think we rarely get perfection in our lives, but we've got to know what it looks like so that we've got something to aim for. Mm, I love that. What a, what a great mental model to work on. You know, because that is life. Life doesn't always work as we've planned. No. We certainly need to do the planning, but we've yep. also got to plan for when life doesn't work to plan. So Absolutely. I love that. What a great mental yeah, model. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, I, I think everything that we start in life has a catalyst. Either the catalyst is something's happened outside of our control and something's happened to us, or there's a catalyst within us that we want to achieve something. Um, and that achievement I've termed as our vision. But the vision is just the outcome you want from your actions you're about to take. Now, we always take actions because we see there's an opportunity to get something better in our lives, right? And I call that the bright, shiny things. We're chasing those bright, mm. shiny things and, and there's altruistically. there's a lot out there. There's tons of them <laughs> out there. But we always have this vision of the great outcome we want. And lots of people just go, there's a great outcome, I'm going to go and do it. And they don't think of what the negative consequences are. They say, well, I want that great outcome. Other people have achieved it, so I should be able to do it too. And they don't think of those negatives. But I say that we've got to understand the outcome we want and then accept responsibility for chasing the shiny things, but also accepting responsibility for the challenges that we might face. So have your vision, but know what the opportunities are and the challenges are. And prepare yourself for both extremes. Mm, mm, great, love it, love it. Uh, you've you've got another tip here that I'd love to go into because um, the the conversations that you had with yourself, the conversations that you had with your team on that day, I'm sure were very special. Um, yes. You want to talk about conversations absolutely. and the impact that has on durability and absolutely the underlying the underlying philosophy behind all of the human durability is that we've got to have open honest confronting conversations with ourselves with our team with those people that we're going to impact by our actions um, about the reality of the situation and it's just about having a open honest confronting conversation about reality if we can do that then we can prepare ourselves properly for what might happen to us. But if we don't have that confronting conversation about the realities, then we will be distracted um, and we won't be able to respond in exactly the way we want to. Uh, Nelson Mandela says that one and, and cannot... Sorry, that we've got to just allude to the fact that that little puppy was uh, my puppy sitting under the bed trying to have a conversation, perfectly timed. <laughs> <laughs> She's obviously recognised some risk out there and she's letting us know about it. She is helping us to prepare for the future. <laughs> so, so sorry, I've, I've no, taken you right. off track there, but um, I love this concept of open, honest and confronting conversations because we like to think that we're having those with ourselves, but actually we don't. You know, having that confronting conversation around what we're chasing as we discussed before that can be really hard because if you do see a bright shiny object you know you kind of discount and you undermine that part of yourself that says this isn't really aligned to your true path here you mm -hmm. know and you, you 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 dismiss it you don't you know you push it back into the background instead of actually listening and allowing that confronting voice to be heard that yeah, is actually yeah. going to save you from a whole lot of pain. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got six steps that take us to a higher self-esteem or a higher level of resilience. So you've got to get to resilient before you can move on to human durability. So I've got six steps to uh, 
uh, resilience. Um, and it's exactly what you said. That's and, I, and I've now forgotten the train of what you were just saying. I was just saying how hard it is to have confronting conversations oh. with ourselves, yeah, <laughs> let absolutely. alone with others. So that is one of the parts of uh, the resilience model as well. It's about um, taking a look at what we are great at and what we're not great at. And when we recognise that there are big challenges, not just hiding it in the background somewhere, but saying to ourselves, actually, how have I managed those sorts of risks in the past? What have I done to overcome those sorts of risks? Um, and then being prepared to be confronting with ourselves, do I actually have the skills to manage those worst outcomes? Mm, yeah. mm. And can I uh, get your opinion on how do you have a confronting some conversation with another person? So let's say you're, you have a relationship with a work colleague or a business associate associate or even somebody in your personal life and you you recognize that there's a scenario that does need to be dealt with what are your tips on having a, a honest open and confronting conversation how do you go about that with somebody else um it, it is actually a challenge uh, because most people don't like having these confronting conversations certainly when i had the conversation with my wife um i think it was a little bit overwhelming for her mm-hmm. because she was aware of it but she'd never spoken about it before mm. Um, this comes back to a conversation we were having just recently uh, about being authentic or being congruent with who you are. If you are speaking to someone from the heart, genuinely concerned about what might impact them, and you come across congruently with concern for them, the conversation is going to be a lot more comfortable and easier to have. It's also about understanding what the impact might be on them when you raise this uh, topic. Because when it's confronting, people will either rebel, they'll deny, they'll, they'll do all those sorts of things. Um, and, and, and it is a matter of finding a way to keep that conversation going so that they can be comfortable with it as well. A lot of people say, I need to have confronting conversations with my staff about their performance. How do I have open, honest, confronting conversations with them and get them to do the work I want them to do? Um, it's not about beating people over the head. It's not about being aggressive. It's about being uh, compassionate, understanding, um, and considerate mm. about what the impact of that conversation is going to be on them. Now, sometimes it, it, it will be better to broach the subject with someone and say, hey, listen, we need to have a conversation about this. And when they rebel and go away, you let them go away. And then you approach them again another couple of days later and say, hey, listen, I'd like to actually follow up on that. Have you thought about that conversation? Oh, listen, I've really been overwhelmed. I'm I'm not sure how to handle it. But because they've got some mental preparation, they're feeling a little bit more comfortable with it now, they're probably willing to explore it just that little bit deeper. And then if they have to run away again, and it depends on the urgency. Um, If this conversation is something that is absolutely urgent, you may have to push and say, no, we have to have it now. And certainly in the star group environment, when we're going into a hostile environment where there could be offenders uh, willing to shoot us, then you know, we don't have time to say, no, give me 10 minutes to think about this. <laughs> that timing um, piece goes out the window. <laughs> yeah, so it depends on the urgency of the conversation you need to have. But if it's, if, if it's one, with one of your colleagues at work and it's something that we need to talk about, something that may be happening in a week's time or two weeks' time or a month's time, or we have to talk about the contingencies that if this business fails, how's it going to impact on our families? They're things that you can gently get into over a period of time. So it's about being considerate and understanding of 
what the impact of the conversation is going to be mm. on those people, working out the urgency of the conversation. I love that. Those those two tips that you've given us are just extraordinary. So um, I'm certainly going to take that away, uh, that you need the intention. So it's the two eyes for me, the intention first. Yeah. And then to be aware of the impact, to phrase things and be kind and compassionate being, and also manage the timing, uh, which is considerate of the impact that you're having on yeah. others. So intention and impact, which is brilliant. Um, okay, so it, just going off that, you've talked about having confronting conversations with others and also with our, ourselves. You know, for you on a daily basis, let's say you've got a, a particularly daunting project. It might be a marketing project that you have for your business. Oh, which... you know me too well. <laughs> <laughs> I share my, your pain on my, that. My challenges come in different forms these days. <laughs> so how do you how do you have that confronting conversation with yourself over perhaps a scenario that is out of your own comfort zone? You know, so it's a skill set that you don't have. What's what's the process that you would go through on that? Um, for that process, I would keep to what I call my five drivers for success. Um, and those five drivers, the first one is maintaining a sense of optimism, knowing that there's something greater out there, mm-hmm. and as a result of your efforts, you're going to be able to achieve it. Uh, the second one is believing in your ability to influence that outcome. Um, and most of the things that are going to happen in my life, I am able to influence, maybe not by myself, but... Uh, driver number five will talk about where we can get extra influence um, to to get outcomes we want. But it, so it's optimism. Second one is influence, believing in our ability to influence it. Because if you have no influence over it, mm. those things are out of your control. You've got to take a completely different strategy. Mm. Um, the third driver is passion. If you've got a real passion for something, you know what you want and you know why you want it then you will push through those barriers. You will mm-hmm. overcome those barriers. Your passion will take you through. Uh, the fourth driver is planning, um, and it's about putting plans in place. That, For the driver's model, the planning basis is just simply some idea of what you're going to deal with, some idea of how you're going to deal with it. right? And it really is as simple as that. Um, and, and that's about doing the contingency planning and going into this model that I now have for human durability. Uh, but the fifth one, most important to responding to your question, is support. If I've got a massive challenge, I look at my friends, my network, my family, and find out where I can get my support. Uh, and this is where I get into things like mastermind groups and, and find out other uh, professionals and experts and who can I network with to actually give me the support to help me overcome those challenges. Um, because we probably have most of the resources we need within ourselves, but quite often we just doubt our own ability. Mm. But when someone says, this is what you need to do and this is how you can do it, you go, I've never even thought of that. There's extraordinary power in the masterminds. It's an Absolutely. incredible uh, thing to be part of a, a Brains Trust. What, a, and what an amazing five-step process. So I can see that that would work. So if we take that back to your marketing, so uh, you're optimistic that you can nail this marketing beast, that you have the ability to influence the outcome of it, that you are passionate about getting this under control this year right now to assist you to grow your business, that you have got a plan in place and that you know who you're going to see, when you're going to do things, how you're going to do things, and you've got the right people lined up to support you. I can see that it's not going to be anywhere near as confronting. Love it. That's just brilliant. 
and, and it's nowhere near as confronting. It doesn't always make it easier to happen. Yeah. But when you understand the process, you go, actually, I can work through that. Yes, And, and it maintains that sense of optimism. I can work through this. Mm. It's still hard work. Mm. No two ways about it. Um, but every new challenge is always going to be new, uh, harder mm. than just following those old habits that we've always been in. Um, Love so it. I, I do find my marketing a big challenge because it's new to me. I've never... Policemen don't necessarily need to market themselves. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many more more skills that you need now <laughs> outside of the Star Force. <laughs> um, so that that's fantastic. So we've had two really incredible uh, guidelines today about human durability, about how to go beyond resilience and how to plan for risk and manage that in advance and how to have open honest and confronting conversations and what is your your third takeaway uh, for for us listening in um the third takeaway is that adversity is the biggest killer of creativity we'll ever encounter and we find adverse times when we haven't properly prepared for them when things are going out of control they're not happening exactly the way we would like to um, and that adversity starts to overwhelm us. And once we start getting overwhelmed, that's when I talk about our emotions going high and our rational thinking going low. So in a normal day, our emotions and our rational thinking sit on an even plane. And we can contemplate, we can plan, we can discuss, we can get mm. creative, we can think outside the square, and we can take our time to do all these things. But as soon as we start getting overwhelmed, we go into panic, we go into mm. fight and flight mode. Right, and we take the first action that is open to us that we are aware of. So when our emotions are high and our rational thinking is low, that's when we take these actions. We go, oh my gosh, this worked for me in the past. I'm going to try it again because this might happen, might work for me this time. And we take actions or we say things that we really aren't proud of. And we know better, but in those moments, we can't get creative. Now, it's not about saying we don't have emotion. Right, and we should rule emotion out of our lives and all the rest of it. For me, going into star group, going into these environments where I'm not fully in control and I'm relying on uh, assessing the behaviours of other people, I understand my emotions are going to go high when I get impacted by something that I'm not totally prepared for. But because of the training I've done, I'm able to go, oh my gosh, my emotions have gone high. Oh no, I have the skills and the emotions come back down very quickly and the rational thinking comes back up and that's what we all need to do just have some idea of what we're going to deal with some idea of how we're going to deal with it which is that fourth step uh, fourth step in the drivers uh, and if we have that some idea of how we're going to deal with it our emotions will come down we go oh no hang on i do have some idea of how i'm going to manage this and our emotions come down our rational thinking comes back up so if we can manage the adversity Right? and take the stress out of the adversity, our life becomes an awful lot easier. We can manage that adversity and manage the emotions either by training, right? and Star Group is obviously some massively intense training, but we can do that sort of training in our minds for our family, for our sport, for our business as well. We go through training scenarios for businesses, um, and so it's extrapolating that. Um, so that's one way of dealing with the adversity is just preparing ourselves, training ourselves for it. Another way is to just introduce some humour. And it's just about having a moment of lightheartedness. And throughout my story of the shooting, there are times where I am in the most adverse situations and I have this bizarre thought. And when I'm talking to people at a keynote 
Um, I've got 2,000 people cracking up, laughing at me while I'm being shot 14 times mm. because of the thoughts that I'm having. It's not that I disregard risk. It's that I've done the training beforehand. The emotion comes back down. I'm able to have a moment of lightheartedness. The mind relaxes. The body relaxes. And we're able to see opportunities or possibilities outside the, outside the square. Um, the third way of dealing with the adversity is doing the planning beforehand. Um, and uh, the last way is sometimes it just takes somebody else to reach out and put their hand on your shoulder, depending how well you know each other, give each other a hug and say it's going to be all right. doesn't change the reality of the circumstances, but it changes you inside. Your mind relaxes, your body relaxes, and you go, oh, actually I've got some support here. Maybe there's something to be more optimistic about. Um, our emotions come down and the rational thinking comes back up. We see opportunities or possibilities that we don't see in the midst of the adversity. Uh, when we get into adverse times, that's when we get very, very tunnel vision mm. and we just focus on the problem. If we can relax in the middle of it, we do see those things just that little bit outside of that tunnel vision. Um, and some people go, how can you possibly do that? There's some really good tips there because, you know, this is such a, a critical area to discuss in, in this day and age where we are being bombarded from every direction with stressors and, and things that, you know, cause life to become um, tougher and harder, you know, that, that we've got so much pressure on us, you know, financially and work-wise, you know, we've got um, enormous stresses in the modern age. So I think, you know, when you look at some of those tips that you've given us to be able to uh, look at, what is the humour in this? You know, how do I need to revisit my planning and look for just stepping it out in a logical way and, you know, coming to, a, again, a place of calm? Um, I think that's incredibly important because, you know, we do have these coping resources that get stretched to the limit that we're okay, 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 okay. And then it's just that little tiny incident yeah. that all of a sudden... It's like our whole world's fallen apart and it might not be a major adversity. Sometimes it can be a oh, tiny little stressor yeah. that, the, that the old creates throw the away line of the, uh, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I think they're really good tips just to you know, have in front of us to um, stop ourselves and to think and to get back to, well, you know, what is the next step I need to take? You know, uh, I think that's totally awesome. Um, you did talk a little bit about looking to manage your emotional response, that we need to level out that um, emotional response. So if you are feeling completely overwhelmed where you don't have that ability to compartmentalise your emotions, how do, how do you start if you're just completely out of kilter and you go, how do I stabilise? What do you do? So the prior to going into the shooting, I, I took a look at, if I get into a situation where everything is absolute chaos, how will I manage it? I knew there were four things that I needed to do in that moment. I need to control panic, um, not let panic take control over the situation. The best way to control panic is have some idea of what you're gonna deal with, some idea of how you're gonna deal with it. Yes, it's out of control, but oh my gosh, I've got some idea. Okay, so the panic comes down. We need to. Con I needed to control shock. That was one of the things that I needed to do. If I get shot, there's going to be bleeding, there's going to be movement of blood in the body um, and that causes shock. It gets drained away from the brain, it gets drained away from the peripherals. So I knew I needed to control shock in my body 
But what I say to businesses is what's the shock effect on your business? When you go into that moment of getting overwhelmed, where are your resources pooled, where your focus is, but where do your resources really need to be to actually respond to it? So that's about controlling the shock response to it. Um, the third one was I needed to control my breathing and slow down my breathing. This is one of the most powerful things that we can do because once we start getting into that overwhelm, we start going short of breath. We start going really contracted in everything that we do. Um, and if we can actually breathe deeply, and there's a, a four-second square breathing process that I talk about, uh, four seconds in, hold for four seconds, out for four seconds, hold for four seconds, in for four seconds, and we just do that, um, that actually just uh, re-oxygenates the blood. Yeah, and it can be quite meditational. Can't oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that happens is that when we re-oxygenate the blood, uh, the body starts going, oh, I've still got plenty of oxygen. I can actually re uh, uh, release this to the rest of the body and it allows it to go back to the brain because you're kind of relaxed. Um, and the, the fourth one was that I needed to slow down my heart rate. Mm. Um, and to slow down my heart rate, that was largely part of slowing down my breathing. Um, but I knew if the heart wasn't pumping as fast, I wouldn't bleed as much. Um, and so that actually combined with controlling shock and my first aid response to it. Um, so, so really you're using quite a lot of physical techniques to be able to manage the emotional response, which is incredibly valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Although I, I do, they, are, they are physical techniques, but they're controlled by our minds. Mm. And when we can calm our mind, we can then start looking outside the square. And how do we do that? is the training, right? The training of ourselves, having those open, honest, confronting conversations about this is a reality, I've already thought about it. Don't have a massive plan, but I've got a thought about it. And if you've got some thought about it, it allows you to take a step forward rather than going into procrastination. I don't know how to deal with this. Yeah. Let me think about it for five seconds, five minutes, five hours, whatever yeah. it might and be. And I'm loving that because you've pre-thought through the chaos scenario. Yep. And so you've looked at what your emotional response is going to be potentially if you fall into that chaos so you're already pre-prepared yep. if it does happen so yeah that's brilliant. the other thing i'm just going to mention very quickly is don't expect perfection of yourself we know what perfection is but we may end up down in chaos so long as you're able to influence yourself to get back towards the perfection accept that yeah you've had a good influence on a, a situation yeah amazing well, um, we probably do need to wrap up for today, but I'm not letting you get away too easily, Derek, because this is you far too interesting, that conversation. And uh, I know that, uh, you know, our beautiful listeners uh, are probably intrigued by your story, to say the least, but certainly inspired as well from the value that you've given us about how we can manage uh, to tap into our own level of resilience and optimism and durability so if you were going to leave us with with one thing which is your star star moment of what you've learned from your life and what you would like to bless us with right now what would that bonus tip be uh, listen I'm, the bonus tip and it's not really a bonus tip because I'm going to reflect back on the open honest confronting conversations that's the underpinning philosophy behind all of this. But what I will add to it uh, is something I was going to mention before, and I think I only got halfway through it. 
Um, is the Nelson Mandela quote. Nelson Mandela, we all admire that man for his patience, his perseverance, his understanding of other people. Um, but uh, I love hearing quotes and, and making the quotes work for me. Nelson Mandela said, one cannot prepare for the future while secretly pretending it's not going to happen. Now I reflect on that and I say that we all know we're making a choice, there are these things that could happen, but if we don't actually think about them and address them, then we're secretly pretending it's not going to happen, and when they do happen, there's the potential there for, to destroy our lives one way or another. So it's just about having those con uh, confronting conversations with ourselves. But being gentle in the process as well. Getting those two levels of comfort, either, wow, I can handle this, and go hard at it, or actually know something will destroy my life, it's not exactly the outcome I want, I'm going to step away from it and find a different way to achieve the same thing. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Well, that is Derek McManus, and you can see now why the Australian Centre for Human Durability uh, is very, very busy. You are sought after for your stage speaking, and you are certainly sought after for training and development. And I know that you have a a new training program coming up on human durability, which yes. I'm very much looking forward to seeing. Yeah, thank you. I, mm. Most of my training that I do is uh, for corporates and I travel the world. Uh, I'm going to Vietnam in uh, May, um, but I've now started running my public programs. Mm. And I have one of those coming up in Adelaide on the 25th of March uh, here in Adelaide. And uh, people can get onto my website give me a phone call, send me an email, uh, and I'll send them out some details. Without Fantastic. any expectation that they do turn up, I'll just send them the information. Brilliant. And I'm sure that uh, anyone who does make the time and effort to go will benefit enormously. Yeah. So it's, it's also advertised on Eventbrite. Excellent. Human durability. So look up Derek McManus, D-E-R-R-I-C-K, McManus, M-C-M-A-N-U-S. And so that is the Achiever Network podcast for today i hope you've enjoyed it and got lots of value and uh, thank you very much for joining us today absolute Derek. pleasure sharon absolute pleasure your reporter skills uh, in interviewing obviously came to the fore thanks, <laughs> thanks so much thank you derek bye for now